Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, August 28th, 2015. So I have been told this is our final study session on Stephen Kantrowitz, Ben Tillman, and the reconstruction of white supremacy. Uh, hopefully folks can get final assessments in. Uh, what we learned, uh, if this book impacted uh, the way folks think about the Charleston shooting uh, and or racism in general, but certainly uh, the Charleston shooting uh, at Emanuel AME Church back in June. That was the catalyst uh, for us doing this book and wanting to know more about this area of the world. Uh, we are in chapter seven. Uh, again, uh, we're on page 274, kind of top of 274. Very excited. Uh, finishing the text up today. Uh, folks can feel free to call in, kind of give us your final analysis and anything that uh, comes out in the text today. Again, we're going to have some uh, cowbell <laughs> with us today and again, making it pretty explicit what this is all about. White terrorism, domination of black people. We will get started. Stephen Kantrowitz, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy audio segment number one. The cows. A photograph dating from the turn of the century repeats this story of Tillman as the champion of the farmers. In this photograph, Tillman standing on a wagon is in his element, his face and body articulating severe truths, while his humbly dressed supporters smile in support and admiration, radiating honest, productive, whiteness. But even a cursory inspection reveals that this picture is a fake. Its anonymous composer, unable to find an actual photograph that portrayed Tillman as the authentic spokesman for the farmers, created one. In a fit of symbolic manipulation that Tillman would have respected, the creator of this montage cropped the senator from a posed portrait and pasted him onto the wagon, creating an image that was more true 
to the well-developed story of Tillman and Tillmanism than any available photograph. An actual photograph of Tillman at work before an audience shows a gesticulating Tillman addressing men from an unpretentious platform. But in many respects, this image presents a rather different story from that of the montage. A few of the tireless men standing toward the front may perhaps be of modest means, but for the most part, the senator speaks to a well-dressed assemblage, whereas the montage's smiling farmers live in a world of white agricultural productivity, the audience here is distinctly more urban. Moreover, the white men are joined by a few similarly dressed black men standing at the edge of the crowd. The presence of these men, however tentative, serves as a reminder that black Southerners' interest in politics did not cease simply because Tillman declared that it must. The montage symbolized the triumph of Tillman's campaign to represent the farmers. Poor white farmers themselves did not sit in Congress, nor, thanks in some measure to Tillman, did populists. In the absence of actual poor whites and actual populists, Tillman could from a distance, pass muster as the embodiment of either or both. This identification grew more credible as one traveled toward the urban north and east, where Tillman's unfamiliar and unfashionable style took on greater importance than his wealth and policies. Discussions of Tillman's social roots and political base blurred leadership into identity, just as Tillman himself had always done. In a piece entitled Tillman, a study of the American from the soil, Appleton's magazine declared that, with no experience as a politician, he became at once a political leader. At the head of his fellow farmers, the wool hats, the one gallows tillers of the soil, he swept through the state on a political tornado. Here, Tillman's career as a paramilitary leader and political organizer became a force of nature, and the complex relations of class that had actually characterized Tillmanism in the 1880s and 1890s disappeared entirely. To journalist Zach McGee, who traveled south to investigate Tillman, embodied the class struggle in South Carolina. He had risen from his roots as an uncouth unknown, uncredited backwoods farmer to become a much-needed gadfly in the U.S. Senate. McGee found Tillman's supporters among the wool hats all the more picturesque for their calls for reform. Tillman's critics, too, ascribed his boorishness to his assumed origins among the poor whites. Hostile white South Carolinians commonly remembered Tillman as having sprung from poor white trash. He had lost one of his eyes in a common brawl and was out with education, recalled a one-time dispensary supplier. Black activist Kelly Miller saw Tillman as the embodiment and expounder of the rule of the nether whites, who had unseated the complacent aristocrats of the old regime. Writing in the aftermath of the Atlanta riot, Miller argued that Tillman had unleashed lower-class passions that an older generation of aristocratic leaders had held in check. Tillman had been 
the first to pitch the poor whites against the Negro in fierce and bitter array. He understood the dynamic power of hatred. Now, all factions vie with each other in denunciation of this race. Tillman belonged to the same class of violent racial radicals as Mississippi's Vardman and George's Watson. Roosevelt concurred. Writing to journalist Ray Stannard Baker, he denounced Tillman, Vardman, and a few others for their blatant contempt for the ordinary decencies of civilization, their readiness violently to champion everything from murder down if the slightest political advantage is to be gleaned therefrom, and their homicidal mania against the majority where the majority happens to be black. In his view, Tillman represented the lower order of whites and was equally hostile to the class above or the class below. Baker similarly identified Tillman as a poor white in his book, Following the Color Line, a series of essays on the state of black citizenship in early 20th century America. Like Miller and Roosevelt, Baker condemned Tillman's appeal to racial hatred and ascribed it to Tillman's putatively lower class origins, not to the imperatives and lessons of slaveholding. Yet Baker could not help admiring Tillman for his achievements in extending popular education, establishing an agricultural college, regulating the liquor traffic. More concerned than either Roosevelt or Miller with the economic and political aspirations of poor white Southerners, Baker allowed himself to be drawn in by Tillman's rhetorical legerdemain. The average citizen, Baker concluded, was much better off as a result of Tillman's administration. Even in a work remarkable for its focus on the question of black citizenship, Baker seemed to have accepted Tillman's definition of the citizen as a white man. The progressive journalist was not the only opponent who adopted some of Tillman's racial assumptions. When Uptown Sinclair dramatized Tillman's 1904 campaign against Chicago socialists in the jungle, he presented Tillman as a tool of the Cook County Democratic machine, which sought to make political capital out of employers' use of black strikebreakers. Sympathetic to the socialists, Sinclair depicted the meeting at which Tillman spoke as a defeat for the South Carolinian. It is worth noting, however, that the same chapter of The Jungle that reported Tillman's failure in Chicago also included Sinclair's portrait of the black strikebreakers as lazy, ineducable, and obsessed with white women. Sinclair's harsh vision shared much more with Tillman than it shared with the colorblind class consciousness urged by some socialists. But even the socialists' attack on Tillman made use of the hostile language of black degradation. In an effort to put Tillman on the defensive, one Chicago socialist demanded, Whose nigger are you, anyway? At least according to the Chicago Broad Axe, a black newspaper, that question floored Senator Tillman, leaving him momentarily speechless. Perhaps Tillman did not exaggerate when he reported to Democratic officials that there is a marked revolution in the North in both feeling and sentiment in regard to the Negro, and that race was a live and burning question that could be used to advantage with white Northern audiences. 
Some critics challenged the myth of Tillman's origins. An occasional article noted that, although it is in many quarters imagined that Tillman has worked his way to his present exalted station from the ranks of the poor whites, Tillman is a member of one of the very best families of South Carolina, and the Tillman estate is one of the finest in the South. But Tillman the planter made as good a myth as Tillman the poor white. For some, Tillman even embodied the plantation legend being promoted by writers like Joel Chandler Harris. When the journalist Broughton Brandenburg conceived of a series of magazine articles called At Home with Big Americans in 1908, the first subject he chose was Ben Tillman, pictured in the American mind as a man of unbridled speech, soul of steel and deed of sword and fire. In his profile, Bradenburg deposited himself in a romantic and apparently unreconstructed edge field. Arriving at the gate to Tillman's plantation, he noted that near the unpainted outbuilding, grayed by sun and rain, a good fire was crackling. To my ears there came the voice of an old negress cheerfully uplifted in one of the wailing hymns of her religion. A little black girl with round, wondering eyes ran to open the great barred gate leading to the barnyard lane. The greenwood smoke lifted and I saw the black kettle, the lye jars, and the grease kegs. They were making soft soap. Continuing on through this plantation landscape, he passed a singing work gang of black cotton pickers and a pair of stubborn mules. The tall, clean-cut young man, riding by with the incomparable ease of the southerner to inspect the cotton, was Tillman's eldest son, B.R., reaching the main house. The writer happily joined the lost world he had miraculously rediscovered. I threw my bridle to a negro, he wrote, who answered in a plantation dialect that turn-of-the-century readers would have found utterly familiar. Yes, sir, I reckon you fine, Master Ben, on the bench there by the tree. Walk right in, sir, yes, sir. Brandenburg's Tillman was the best the South had to offer, a man of simplicity, directness, and strength, a mild old gardener, who was nonetheless capable of attacks on institutions in which the words burned like Greek fire. His much-loved wife was an excellent housekeeper, and his sons had become accomplished scientific farmers. In town, men sought Tillman's opinions as to the state of the cotton market. In his wonderful mingling of gentleness and ferocity, Tillman had also earned the love and respect of his picturesque black laborers. Brandenburg focused in particular on Old Joe, Tillman's longtime employee Joseph Gibson, dwelling on his battered old black hat and pants with the weather-worn look of a plank that has been out in the woodyard for years. Tillman's good stewardship apparently included keeping even his dearest employee in rags. According to Brandenburg, Tillman was better loved by Negroes than any man in Washington, and others agreed that on his plantation he was 
the idol of his darkies. Brandenburg was aware that Tillman had ridden with the rifle clubs, which he identified as the Ku Klux Klan, and he summoned up memories of the terrifying shouts of the Edgefield Hussars in the dark days of Reconstruction, riding to intimidate by night the insolent Negroes. But the plantation idol immediately at hand showed no trace of that sort of violence. As Tillman rode over his property, African Americans emerged from their cabins to ask after his health. And when night settled over Edgefield, Brandenburg's noiseless dark was punctured only by the sound of a shot as some planter drives a plundering Negro from his melon patch. Brandenburg's artless white supremacist romance resembled Tillman's own paternalist pretensions. Tillman did rhapsodize constantly about his relationship with Joe Gibson, whom he had employed since the 1870s. He did so with such regularity that a black Cincinnati newspaper denouncing the senator as that foul-mouthed cyclops remarked on his tendency to shed a tear or the virtues of his humble friend and attendant, Old Black Joe. Joe, Tillman frequently claimed, did not care about voting or education. He professed their mutual love, interdependence, and obligation. I would die to protect him from injustice or wrong, he declared. But the language of ownership was never far away as when he mused, I do not know whether I belong to Joe or Joe belongs to me. Of course, he knew. Joe's place in Tillman's heart was dependent on his place on the farm, for he was a species of subordinate, if not in fact a species of property. Creelman's article on Tillman was accompanied by several pictures of Tillman's Trenton estate, including one entitled The Three Joes, a photograph of Joe Gibson, the faithful Negro, holding the reins of Joe Bailey and Joe Blackburn, the senator's favorite horses. All three Joes were faithful. All three Joes were favorites. All three Joes were Tillmans. The headstone Tillman commissioned for Gibson's grave after his death a few years later reflects the self-consciousness and self-congratulation inherent in Tillman's 20th century paternalism. The inscription read, erected by Senator B.R. Tillman to the memory of Joseph Gibson, born a slave about 1845, died March 1, 1912. He was a loyal friend and faithful servant, the best type of his race and example of his training. We will never know how Gibson would have felt about such a characterization or the fact that even on the marker for his own grave, his employer's name came first. The Southernization of American Politics Tillman had not actually reconstructed the slave South, and in any case, such idealized visions of the plantation represented a paternalist fantasy, not a violently stratified agricultural society where gunshots represented business as usual. African Americans, more than a generation removed from slavery, regarded Tillman as the enemy of all their aspirations, and in 1906, with Tillman a national celebrity and the ashes of the Atlanta riot barely cool, black Chicagoans 
went on the offensive. The philanthropic board of a Chicago hospital association had hired Tillman to speak at a fundraising event, but by 1906, black Chicagoans numbered in the tens of thousands and Tillman's impending arrival sparked a militant reaction. At least one death was attributed to conflict over Tillman's upcoming address. A white man who had taunted black Chicagoans with Tillman's views was shot through the head. Hoping to defuse this situation, a trio of black civic leaders, an editor, a minister, and a dentist, offered the head of the hospital association $5,000, in some reports $10,000, to cancel Tillman's speech. Adele Keeler refused. Oh, you colored people are always getting into some brawl, she told the three men. A committee of black ministers then petitioned the city's mayor to declare the advocate of lynching a menace to public safety and peace and to ban him from speaking. Although the mayor refused, he also declined to introduce Tillman, describing himself as not in sympathy with mob law, lynch law, or assassination. Finally, a group of leading black citizens extracted a vague promise from the hospital association that Tillman would speak not on the race problem, but on the annexation of Cuba. Tillman took advantage of the fracas to demonstrate his defiance. Speaking in Michigan and Wisconsin in the days before the Chicago speech, Tillman told worried well-wishers that my life has been threatened so many times because of my attitude on the race question that I pay no attention now to threats. This bravado provoked admonitions from his worried wife and two detectives kept close by, as the Chicago Tribune put it, to guard him from any possible outbreak of race war. Tillman would not promise to discuss only Cuba. To treat the subject as it should be treated necessitates the introduction of the race question. The annexation of Cuba and the Negro situation are so closely linked as to cause me to decline to make any changes in my lecture. African Americans continue to debate the merits of militant versus peaceful protest. Editor T. Thomas Fortune often flayed Ben Tillman unmercifully in his speeches. Responding to a violent Tillman speech in Wisconsin, Fortune was quoted as telling the members of the Afro-American Press Association, we have cringed and crawled long enough. I don't want any more good niggers. I want bad niggers. It's the bad nigger with a Winchester who can defend his home and children and wife. W. Calvin Chase of the Washington Bee forcefully dissented from Fortune's advocacy of armed resistance, fearing that such advice would endanger black Southerners. Julius Taylor, editor of the Chicago Broad Axe, spent much of the late 1906 and early 1907 denouncing Tillman as brainless, an anarchist, and a maniac, and he praised black and white ministers and editors who condemned the South Carolinian. Taylor mocked the notion that black men constituted a threat, sexual or otherwise, to white Southerners, and he urged black and white opponents to greet Tillman with demonstrations and hostile questions, not violence. Verbal attack was the general rule. 
in the souls of black folk, W.E.B. Dubois declared that it was the imperative duty of thinking black men to denounce Ben Tillman. Kelly Miller, despite his misconceptions about Tillman's origins, fulfilled the obligation Dubois had mandated describing Tillman as the guide, philosopher, and friend of those who worship at the shrine of racial narrowness and hate. The Tillman regime, he explained, is based upon the fear that, after all, the Negro might not be inferior. He is deprived of his rights lest he develop suspected power. Black ministers, editors, and others work to combat and neutralize Tillman wherever possible. Two days before Tillman spoke in overwhelmingly white Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, a black minister traveled from Indianapolis to deliver a preemptive rebuttal, a plea for fairness for the colored man. Humor could sometimes deflate Tillman's claims to expertise in racial matters. During a speech to the Senate on the race problem, Tillman asserted that no man living knows the American Negro better than I do. But before he could continue, a ripple of laughter passed over the chamber and through the galleries in which many of the colored people in the galleries joined. Lawrence Levine reports a joke set during the South Carolina Constitutional Convention in which Tillman was criticized by a black delegate and responded with the threat, Why, you dirty black rascal, I'll swallow you alive. The man replied, If you do, you'll have more brains in your belly than you've got in your head. The rejoinder revealed the deep antipathy Tillman engendered among many black people and the potential for catharsis in direct challenges to his authority. Sometimes the moral point of satirical representations remained ambiguous or grimly ironic. One cartoon entitled Things That Might Have Happened But Won't showed Tillman inviting Booker T. Washington to lunch. Some northern whites lodged protests. In 1907, the Detroit Free Press depicted Tillman using his pitchfork to fertilize a plant labeled Race War. A white Midwestern Democrat regretted Tillman's recent local appearance, explaining that he does not represent the best thought of the South in his discussion of this problem. Tillman was an incendiary precipitating a conflagration from which Midwestern men would have to rescue him, marching south once more, this time to save Mr. Tillman and his terrified compatriots from a catastrophe which they have recklessly provoked. But more often, white Northerners' response to black protest foretold the nationalization of white Southern anxieties. The newspaper coverage of Tillman's Chicago appearance persistently depicted African Americans as violent and dangerous. A Wisconsin newspaper reported that the colored people of Chicago are being aroused to a state of frenzy, and the committee has been notified by letter that the senator will be shot on stage if he attempts to deliver his address. Such threats provoked defiant promises of detectives, uniformed policemen, and volunteer guards to escort him from the train station to the hall where he was to speak. Tillman believed that black 
in migration would bring white northerners around to his point of view. His prediction was given murderous reality in 1908 in Springfield, Illinois. More riots followed in which white mobs attacked black citizens as in July 1917 in East St. Louis, Illinois. This city, just across the Mississippi River from the old slave markets of St. Louis, was hardly northern enough to expose Yankee hypocrisy. But the year after Tillman's death would bring a wave of anti-black violence that was truly national in scope. The Red Summer of 1919 fulfilled Tillman's prophecy that white northerners confronting substantial black populations at close quarters would soon resort to murderous violence as white Chicagoans, among many others, rioted against their black neighbors. At the same time, Tillman's version of the South's recent history was becoming part of the national consciousness. While Tillman toured the nation as a lecturer, his friend and ally Thomas Dixon Jr. was promoting the same message through more modern media. Dixon, a North Carolinian by birth, had long been an admirer of Tillman's. In the early 20th century, he published novels such as The Leopard's Spots, a romance of the white man's burden, and The Klansman, an historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan, wildly popular fictions that drew on white supremacist accounts of the violent overthrow of biracial governments. The hero in Dixon's melodramas was the race-proud white man who mobilized against Negro domination. The villain was the frustrated and lustful black rapist. Anyone who had been listening to Tillman during the previous quarter century would have found this story familiar. In fact, Dixon sometimes claimed that Tillman had inspired him to write The Klansman. This may simply have been astute marketing. Dixon spread the credit for The Klansman wherever he thought it would do the most good, and Tillman was only one of many to whom he attributed it. But the claim was at least credible. The Klansman became an enormously popular stage play, which Tillman praised in the Augusta Chronicle. In a note of thanks, Dixon bragged that this work would probably pay me as much as two millions in the next 20 years. But he claimed to prize its power and influence in shaping public opinion far above its financial returns. Public opinion meant, in part, thought and emotion, and Dixon's work resonated with many white Americans' anxieties and fantasies at the turn of the century. Tillman himself was moved in a profound and particular way. After attending a war play that stirs the blood like the Klansman, Tillman wrote to his wife, he went to bed and wanted you with me more than I can tell. Opponents of Tillman and Dixon understood the power of these men's declarations and representations. As the Klansmen traveled the country, covering much of the same ground as Tillman's lecture tours, campaigns against the play and the lectures took place side by side. After a white mob attacked blacks in Desmones, Iowa, a local black leader drew the connections. Such lawlessness, he complained, was just what may be expected to occur in any community that will patronize such damnable productions as 
Thomas Dixon's Klansmen and such infamous blackguards as the Honorable Senator Benjamin Ryan Tillman, whose sole purpose is to poison the minds of northern white men against my people. While black Chicagoans were attempting to stop Tillman's 1906 speech, Philadelphia's black citizens mobilized to protest the Klansmen. A spokesman described the effects of its depiction of black people. The respect that we command is destroyed. We are slurred wherever we go. We are pointed out as brutes. Our women are sneered at. Our children on the streets and in the schools are subjected to indignities. The city's mayor concurred that the intention of the play is to intensify the racial hatred that existed between our white and colored citizens in the southern states during the Reconstruction period and that the tendency of the play is to produce racial hatred. Promotion of the play deliberately sought to arouse our colored citizens to a state of frenzy. I therefore forbid the play, proven as the Klansman, to be continued. Some of South Carolina's newspapers denounced the novel and play as racially inflammatory and a few localities, notably Orangeburg, home of Claflin College, banned the play outright. But the Klansman also drew a more pedantic form of criticism in the state whose history it claimed to depict. The Columbia State pointed out that the Klan had disappeared in 1871, but Reconstruction had continued in South Carolina for another five years. An authentic representation of redemption would have included red shirts, not white robes. The film version of The Klansman, entitled The Birth of a Nation, produced by D.W. Griffith, was released in 1915 to a mixture of enthusiastic praise, bitter condemnation, and local controversy. Kelly Miller, Oswald Garrison Villard, and many others denounced it as a slander against black people. Despite substantial opposition, however, the film gained positive reviews and large audiences. Presidential approval and similar endorsements by congressmen and members of the Supreme Court caused censors to withdraw. The film was immensely popular in South Carolina, where it played to packed houses throughout the 1910s and 1920s. The wide, if far from unanimous acclaim for the birth of a nation represented the triumph of Tillman's evolving vision of Southern history. By the 1910s, Tillman's and Dixon's myths had become the dominant interpretation of Southern history. Through the scholarship of pro-redemption historians, popular works such as Claude Bowers' The Tragic Era and the repeated assertions of hundreds of politicians, Tillman's version of Reconstruction and Redemption attained broad national acceptance among white Americans. Dissidents such as Dubot, who outlined a radically different interpretation of Reconstruction, endured generations of neglect, even after the triumphs of the Civil Rights Movement and the re-emergence of a Dubosian interpretation of Reconstruction, the victory engineered by Tillman and rendered by Dixon and Griffith lived on in American popular culture. Tillman's white supremacy had reconstructed Reconstruction and, despite opposition, was reconstructing the nation. 
but as Tillman turned his gaze homeward in the last decade of his life, he found that the foundations he had helped lay in South Carolina did not seem to support the white patriarchal republic he had envisioned. Chapter 8 Demagogues and Disordered Households A stroke temporarily paralyzed Tillman's left side and for a time left him unsteady, weak, and forgetful. In 1910, he fell ill again, collapsing on the steps of the Capitol. For several days, his death was expected, and although he did gradually mend, he never fully regained his strength. Physical weakness took a psychological toll. Although he recognized the figure he saw in the mirror, he admitted that he felt like I ought to be arrested as a fraud. I am afraid the days of my fighting are over. He sighed to a supporter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Tillman had known many moments of apparent defeat, and he fought death as determinedly as he fought emancipation. Applying his eclectic conception of reform to his own body, he became a health, fattest, and physical culture enthusiast. He turned to a diet of raw onions, spinach, hot water, and an eggnog of his own devising. He lifted dumbbells and performed deep breathing exercises. Thrilled with his recovery, he once again sought to turn his personal experience into a model for social change, this time by reforming the habits of his fellow senators. He deplored the symptoms of congressional disease caused by too much eating, drinking, and smoking, and not enough exercise and sleep. He did not claim to have all the answers. I lament every day of my life the lack of knowledge of my own body, he confessed, but he did not want his colleagues to benefit from his experiences and explorations. Among other things, he induced his colleagues to ban smoking in the Senate chamber. As Tillman struggled against physical debility, the realities of South Carolina politics and his own family life pleased him even less than the mirror by his sickbed. Across the nation, white Americans moved toward accepting Tillman's version of Southern history and racial hierarchy, but Tillman's own son and his most successful political disciple represented failures, perhaps even betrayals of his efforts. The agricultural renewal that he had sought to nurture and protect seemed less and less plausible. White laborers proved hardly better than black and an increasing number worked in the mills rather than the fields. Meanwhile, despite his efforts, the race problem continued to cast a terrifying shadow over the future of the white republic. The Decline of Agricultural Patriarchy Tillman had spent his career trying to reconstruct the world he believed his family and class had lost, a world in which prosperous, independent white men toiled with the aid of sturdy farm wives and grateful black dependents. On paper, he seemed to have achieved at least personal success. By the second decade of the 20th century, Tillman's primary holdings spread across the upper Piedmont. He owned more than 200 acres, at his home in Trenton, a parcel of 250 acres near 96, about 600 acres at Chester, 
where he was born and raised and small holdings of land in Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. Additional lands in Greenwood County had by 1911 been distributed to his sons. He also owned a growing number of shares of stock, especially in the last years of his life, mainly in agricultural concerns and local banks. The bulk of Tillman's wealth, however, consisted of his earnings as a lecturer. In October 1907, Tillman told his daughter, Sophie, that his appearances since March of that year would end up netting him about $25,000, which he was trying to save and invest it wisely so that his children may not have to slave and work too hard. Whenever Tillman was away from Trenton, he wrote a stream of letters to the family members and employees who oversaw his property. Foremost among these was Sally. Even before he left for the Senate, he wrote to his wife from his desk at the Constitutional Convention, telling her to notify one tenant that unless he pays up all rent and advances for the year, I cannot let him stay there next year. Cotton has gone down, and I urged him to hurry it in and sell early, so it is not my fault if he does not pay out. Take corn peas or any cheese, but he must pay up and not leave any new debt. He wrote similar letters of direction from the Senate, the road, and his sickbed. Raised during the war and Reconstruction, Sally Tillman had never expected to live insulated from such practicalities. Responding to her husband in a typical letter, she described hiring women to hoe cotton, putting men to work in the corn and peas, renting a horse, and selling grapes. Without any noticeable change in inflection, she reported having gone out last night in the back of the garden and shot my pistol several times to frighten away some rogue or rascal come to steal grapes or cream. Your mother says Negroes steal more than it takes to feed a family, Ben Tillman casually reported to Sophie. Such confrontations with criminals, whom the Tillmans assumed to be their black laborers, left her annoyed rather than frightened. I'm so thankful that I'm not afraid, she wrote. A good wife was the safest ballast for a man, Tillman thought, and he boasted that Sally's petticoat government had made him the best henpecked husband in the state, but if he had done any good, she was mainly responsible. When Sally suffered a partial mental collapse in 1913, Tillman reported to his son that although she was listless and indifferent, she still finds fault with me, as is natural. Indeed, Sally was relentlessly practical. She did not care about fine clothes or expensive possessions. I do not try to be extravagant. She told her daughter, Sophie, my ring is the most costly thing I've wanted, and I'm glad I've got that much safe, for it is an investment. She could become impatient with Tillman about economic matters. I have been all over the place this morning, and the cotton is white, I tell you. She wrote testily while he was on tour. Ironically, it was her husband, a long-time proponent of self-sufficiency and diversification, who kept them tied to the cotton economy. She complained that he said he took on speaking engagements because they needed the money for their old age. 
but then he gambled the money on cotton futures. When he talks about feeling obliged to do this work for us, I simply wish we could live without spending anything at all. For this society to perpetuate itself, patriarchs like Tillman had to pass along to their sons their wisdom and virtue and a stable agricultural order. Tillman kept careful track of the money and land he dispersed to his children and in his will he instructed his executors to make sure that each child received an equal amount. Still, he thought that some work was requisite for health and a rational life self-reliance. So when Sally made it known that she would not want to stay at Trenton if Tillman died before she did, Tillman considered selling, not giving, the home place to his eldest son, B.R. Tillman worried about his children's futures in the state. South Carolina, he told B.R. in 1896, offers less opportunities for men to get rich or comfortable than many others. The Commonwealth to which he had dedicated his life remained the poorest state in some respects east of the Mississippi and its future can never be very great. He became convinced that B.R. and his younger brother Henry should move to Indian Territory, Oklahoma, or the Pacific Northwest. Tillman could invest in land, and the two boys would have a much better opening there than in South Carolina. They needed that advantage, he feared, for Henry was simple-hearted and unsophisticated. As it turned out, though, it was the older son, B.R., who gave Tillman cause for concern. B.R., born in 1878, was hardly the idealized young aristocrat Brandenburg had presented to his readers in 1908. By his 20s, in fact, B.R. had become an alcoholic. For Ben Tillman, architect of the dispensary, this constituted a bitter irony. For Ben and Sally Tillman, what they saw as their son's weakness and irresolution was a source of constant frustration. Do you know I've lost all patience with him? He can stop drinking when he wants to, Sally wrote to her husband, who agreed that no one can help him if he doesn't leave off drinking. When Tillman was stricken in 1908, B.R. promised to stop drinking while his father was ill, prompting the senator to write that in case he would almost rather continue sick. While the family monitored B.R.'s habits, Tillman looked for explanations. He sometimes blamed bad company for his son's drinking. If the young man would stay away from the corrupting influence of town folk, Tillman thought, he would be safe from the temptations of alcohol. But if environmental factors were to blame, Tillman knew he could not easily evade responsibility for his son's limitations. An uneven education, he told the young man, had provided him with a defective foundation. This was a particularly brave admission, for B.R. had been a member of Clemson's first graduating class in 1896. Speaking before a Citadel audience in 1899, Tillman remarked ruefully that it did not take a military college to make a dude, for as he had discovered, 
even agricultural colleges did the same. Tillman's direct involvement in his son's affairs did not seem to improve matters. After graduating from Clemson, B.R. had spent several years working on the family farm at Trenton. He had finally left in 1903 when he married aristocratic Lucy Dugas and took over the Edgefield Plantation. When their marriage fell apart, B.R. returned to his father's employment as his private secretary, but Tillman finally fired his unreliable son, leaving him humiliated. In 1909, though, the senator became involved in the battle for custody of his grandchildren. Tillman believed that Lucy was morally and practically unfit to raise the children by herself. B.R. agreed, and the men set in motion a controversy that exposed the 20th century limits of patriarchal authority. Under a century-old statute, fathers in South Carolina had the right to deed their children away from mothers. At the end of 1909, B.R., pointing to his estranged wife's unfitness and inability to raise my two children as they should be raised, deeded his daughters to Ben and Sally. Public reaction was swift and harsh. This practice made patriarchy's theory of ownership too explicit, violating many citizens' sense of what constituted a reasonable and proper exercise of paternal power. Hostile politicians jumped on the deed as evidence that Tillman was old and out of touch. Tillman, though, was unapologetic. The law had allowed his son to make the deed, he wrote, and despite the progress of civilization in emancipating women and giving them more and more rights, he did not think the deed should be retroactively annulled. The case went to the Supreme Court, which on the 15th of February 1910 struck down the statute and returned the children to their mother. The very next day, Tillman collapsed on the Capitol steps from his second stroke and entered his long final illness. It was as though he could not tolerate so dense a tangle of personal and philosophical defeat. B.R. finally gained partial custody of his daughters, but he remained wounded and defensive and resisted his family's suggestions and directives. He retreated to the family home at Trenton, where he worked for, rented from, and finally bought land from his father. But B.R. complained about Tillman's constant criticisms and demanded, at the age of 34, to be treated as a man, just as determined as you are to receive the deference in my own affairs that you receive in yours. The bluster hardly concealed his shame and diffidence. Even as he demanded autonomy, he continued to rely on Tillman to set the terms of their rental agreement and advise him on agricultural matters. The management of a free labor force continued to vex the Tillmans. The great trouble in developing anything in South Carolina is the labor we have had, Ben Tillman sighed. After Joe Gibson's death in 1912, Tillman complained, My main trouble at Trenton was in having no Negro that I could rely on in any way. A half century after emancipation, the gentleman from Africa continued to leave Tillman dissatisfied. Once workers were hired, he warned, some responsible white person must stay with them. Given the slightest opportunity, 
black workers would steal from and otherwise impose on a landowner. Renters and sharecroppers would stand back and make the wages Negroes do the work. Unsuccessful croppers would do their best to carry crops away if not carefully overseen. Tillman believed he knew individual black men and women well enough to assess their degree of competence and trustworthiness and he grew irritated with BR for renting land to one man instead of another whom Tillman preferred. But Tillman regarded even longtime black employees as unreliable and improvident. The widowed Kitty Gibson does not attend to her duties as she should when Sally is not there. Another man was crazy for $19, which he said he needed to keep from losing his buggy. But the frugal Sally had little patience for these seemingly irrational attachment to a luxury item. I haven't it to let him have, and I don't know what he wants with it anyway, Sally told Tillman. Tillman constantly worried that his people were taking advantage of him. As 1912 drew to a close and it came time to settle up annual rental and sharecropping arrangements, Tillman wrote insistently to B.R. about a small matter that seemed to trouble him a good deal. I have a mortgage on Ben Lanham's mule, explained the U.S. Senator, and he ought not to be allowed to leave the place and carry the mule or carry any corn away. Let us clean him up before he leaves. Two days later, he reminded his son of the matter, describing the written agreement he had used to ensure getting the rent and what I advanced him. The master sighed under the burden of such ungrateful servants. It is very unpleasant to have to deal with Negroes, and especially when you have known them a long time, as I have known Ben. But they have no appreciation of kindness and forbearance and are ready to do a white man any time they get the chance. Planter paternalism's contradictions continue to bubble up in Tillman's early 20th century letters. Grand statements about the Negro alternated with highly individualized assessments and reports of privileges offered or withdrawn. Whenever possible, Tillman made arrangements directly with individual African Americans, and like any planner, he sought to control the disposition of the privileges he offered to be the sole author of any largesse and to grant it to worthy black individuals, not to what seemed to him to be a largely unworthy black community. About the sweet potatoes, he told B.R., Mark and Fanny ought to be allowed to eat as many as they can, but not give their friends and neighbors any. Simply finding enough laborers could be a problem. Some plantation owners reported success. A cousin planting cotton nearby had more Negroes than he wants. He is kind to them, gives them everything they need, and whips them when they do not work to suit him but others did not fare so well. I heard at Trenton the usual complaints about some men having no hands at all, Tillman reported. It was in such a context that Tillman advised Sally to hire hands at any price they may cost, but to do so without letting other employers 
know so as to avoid causing a row in the neighborhood. Any conflicts arising over such violations of informal wage ceilings went unrecorded, but white landowners like Tillman and his neighbors still feuded over the real and symbolic boundaries of their authority. Tillman might have been the aggressor in such cases. J.C. Shaw's 1891 warning to the governor to keep your wagons off my growing crops if you are a man of God's sake let me alone represented a century of ordinary landowners jealousy of their rights and prerogatives. Tillman himself resented such incursions. For example, a tree on his Trenton property obstructed some right of way and the local council ordered it removed. Tillman had no objection to this, but he was outraged when the council apparently claimed the right to dispose of the wood from the tree. I cannot permit any such claim to go unchallenged, Tillman told a white man involved in the proceedings. I denied the council's right to give or sell any of my property to anybody, and if it thinks I am wrong, we will settle the matter in the courts. Even if he did not echo Shaw's threat of personal retribution, Tillman remained protective of his property. A few years later, he urged B.R. to keep neighbors, hogs, and cows out of his pastures. By the 20th century, it was clear that Tillman's real affection was for agrarian politics, not professional agriculture. The institutions that took up Tillman's time were not the farms and households he idealized, but the boards, committees, and caucuses of politics and government. He was no longer closely identified with the reform of agricultural methods and economics. Despite his micromanagement of crops and laborers, Tillman was not a great success as a practical farmer and had little useful advice to offer others. The Clemson State Farmers Institute was just the kind of organization that Tillman had called for during the 1880s, a form where successful scientific farmers could dispense their wisdom to an interested audience. But when Tillman appeared on its program in 1906, his topic was the curiously bourgeois beautifying the country house. A few years later, when he did give a somewhat more practical talk on hog raising, he admitted that he had last raised a hog himself 15 years before. His days as a practical, progressive farmer were over. His detachment from agricultural matters was evident in a 1907 letter from a confidant and protege, John G. Richards, fulminated against the lean law because it allowed black men to act as independent farmers, which he believed they could not do successfully and because it discouraged them from working for white landowners. Although this was precisely the line Tillman had taken during the 1880s and 1890s, Richards had to ask Tillman whether the lean law had been an element in his campaigns. Tillman had gained a reputation as an agricultural reformer, but no one seemed to recall any longer precisely what performs he had endorsed. The Legacies of Tillmanism Although the narrative of history had always mattered to Tillman as a young man, 
he had not worried that others might not be getting his story just right. When a college student wrote to Tillman in 1894 asking for details of the campaign of 1876, Tillman casually put him off. As he grew older, though, Tillman became eager to define his own legacy. In the last decade of his life, it sometimes seemed that the only thing Tillman wanted to talk about were the heroic deeds of his youth. He did extensive research on the campaign of 1876, and he considered writing a book on the race question or an autobiography. Tillman also sought to shape his immediate legacy in South Carolina politics. This was a considerably more difficult task than shaping the past, for it required coming to terms with the political culture he himself had helped create. Tillman had used innuendo and insinuation against his democratic foes. He had exploded violently against blacks, Republicans, Northerners, and anyone else who had challenged his words or prerogatives. He had controlled political conventions and his own political movement so tightly that long after he left for Washington, D.C., reformers wrote to him for instructions. Will you please tell me, wrote one in 1906, just what we want to fight for in the state convention. Also, please tell me what it is that we don't want. Clearly, he had promoted loyalty to his person more than loyalty to a well-defined program. In the 1910s, he began to worry that the style he had nurtured might prove more enduring than the substantive victories. Illness and distance had diminished Tillman's power in state affairs. Although he won re-election in 1912, after 1910 he would no longer dominate state politics. He remarked matter-of-factly to his friend and lawyer J. William Thurmond in early 1912, I, of course, do not know what the feeling in the state is except from the newspapers. He had spent so long in Washington, D.C., on the road, and recovering from illness that he no longer even claimed to know what the farmers were thinking. Men like the urbane Richard Manning, a reform-minded representative of the town classes, won the governorship during the 1910s, but Manning's opponents, the men who followed more closely in Tillman's footsteps, bothered the senator even more. The most troubling manifestation of the Tillmanite legacy was Coley, Coleman Livingston Blease. A Tillmanite legislator in 1890, Blease had subsequently run with mixed success for several offices, including governor. In 1908, he had come in second in the gubernatorial race, and in 1910, with Tillman's support, he was finally elected. But once Blease reached the governorship, Tillman began to doubt the wisdom of his endorsement. Blease's appeal to the state's white male mill hands closely followed the pattern Tillman had established a generation before. Claiming to stand up for the disfranchised and dispossessed elements of the state's white population, he leveled baseless charges at his opponents and cast aspersions on their whiteness and manhood. But whereas Tillman had struggled to protect both white men's prerogatives and the rule of law, Blease made no bones about his preference 
for violent self-assertion. His public persona and policies were wilder and more reckless than Tillman's. Not only did he curse, but he gambled and bragged of drinking bootleg whiskey. He pardoned unprecedented numbers of criminals and used his appointment powers with little regard for appearances or qualifications. He also took Tillman's support for mob violence to new heights beyond justifying the lynching of black men accused of raping white women. Blease declared that when mobs are no longer possible, liberty will be dead. Sometimes after a lynching writes his most acute interpreter, Blease publicly celebrated the savage murder with a bizarre death dance. Blease's anti-aristocratic rhetoric closely matched Tillman's. In the 1920s, his weekly newspaper urged voters to save South Carolina from ring rule and corporate control and elect the friends of the farmers and laboring men. His enemies were the state's self-appointed voices of reform and moderation. In Bryant Simon's description, intellectuals, fool theorists, wise-looking old fossils, and members of the holier-than-thou crowd. Like Tillman, too, Blease provided little practical, constructive aid for the men he claimed as constituents. According to Rupert Vance, Blease offered a class appeal without offering a class program. He opposed legislation that would improve the health of mill workers, denouncing it as figurative attack on white men's patriarchal prerogatives and a literal attack on the sexual purity of their daughters. Tillman in Washington, D.C., had long fought federal legislation limiting the hours of work, declaring such regulation to be a state prerogative. But Blease had no state-level reform to offer. He sometimes supported other people's proposals for protective legislation, but he also argued that mill hands should be left alone and allowed to manage their own affairs. When a plunge in the price of cotton struck the state's farmers in 1911, Blease refused either to endorse the farmers' union's proposed warehouse system, a weak state-level echo of the sub-treasury plan, or to offer a constructive suggestion of his own. Blease was another distorted image staring back from Tillman's cloudy mirror, and as both men sought re-election in 1912, the senator vacillated. He knew that various elements of the state Democratic Party would wage a strong fight against Blease, but he could not decide whether he could afford to stand openly against his one-time disciple. In private letters to his close associates, Tillman declared Blease not fit for office and a disgrace to the state, but he asked them to keep his feelings private. I know that almost every Blease man is a Tillmanite or was one formally, he told his nephew. Blease was every bit the stump speaker and organizer that Tillman had been, and Tillman expected the campaign to be as rough as his own re-election fight in 1892. Tillman had always known that hot rhetoric and vehement supporters were keys to victory, and that the only way to fight the devil was with fire. He thought that Blease has enough Tillmanism in him to have learned this if he needed any teaching. Further, Blease's chief opponent in the 1912 race was Ira Jones, 
Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court, who had joined the majority in ruling against B.R.'s deed, and Sally Tillman felt strongly that her husband should give Blease the benefit of the doubt rather than throw his support to Jones. Blease fulfilled all of Tillman's worst expectations. During the summer stump meeting campaign, Blease assailed Jones as a representative of the moneyed interests and the corporations who had handed down decisions favorable to the railroad that employed his son, a local lawyer. He accused Jones of racial apostasy, pointing to his votes against separate car legislation, and he publicly aired sexual and racial slanders that Tillman would have left at the level of insinuation. You people who want social equality vote for Jones, he told one audience. You men who have nigger children vote for Jones. You who have a nigger wife in your backyard vote for Jones. When a white man interrupted him during a political meeting, Tillman reported Blease rebuked him by saying, when you leave here and it gets dark, you can go around to see your nigger sweetheart. Tillman claimed to be appalled by this indiscriminate use of this charge against a white Democratic opponent. Blease's remark, Tillman thought, violated the rules of decency and decorum and was an offense against every lady in the audience as well as decent men. It could only injure the state's reputation. A southern governor might speak of many things, but not white men's sexual liaisons with black women, and especially not in mixed and public company. Context of white supremacy. We will pick up there uh, on the home stretch. Almost done. Uh, that would be page 298. So we have 10 pages, and we will be all done with Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy. The number to dial if you would like to participate, new number, new number is 641-715-3640. Code is the same, 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you have a question. Uh, the number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, if you would like to use the free flash phone works anywhere in the world it's linked at black talk radio network if you need the address it is tiny t i n y dot c c forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in the code or excuse me the address rather when you put in that address just look on the left of the page you'll see the link it'll say free flash phone click that link it will open a small window on your screen the top line pick the number that I just gave out which is six four one seven one five three six four zero 
next line it will ask for the code that code again five six four nine four three the final line where it says name you can put in uh, random keys you can use a nickname if you're comfortable with your real name that is fine too click the green button at the bottom that will connect you to the program you should be able to hear us live same procedure if you would like to participate you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six when you do that you will hear an audio prompt it will ask you to press one do so I'll see your hand we'll get you on the line and we'll go from there again this is our final session on Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy so any uh, concluding thoughts certainly people that have been following along with us the whole time anything uh, major themes that stick out what you're thinking we do have you know the second audio segment uh, is coming up but just kind of have that in mind as we go uh, we'll move uh, get some of the folks who dialed in but this is our final uh, final session today uh, all the folks who have dialed in who have a hand up thus far the line should be open if you have commentary you would like to get in feel free I just want to make sure I get uh, get my my this is my new favorite line because I just I think this one is more important than the Negro domination one which we've heard a lot but uh, from last week where he said if you scratch the white man too deep you will find the same savage whose ancestry used to roam wild in Britain when the Danes and Saxons first crossed over I probably just stop it when he says used to roam wild and just leave it right there I think that right there for me most important quote in the book and I will definitely be using that moving forward but that is the quote of the book and then a close second is the threat of Negro domination sort of Damocles all the folks who dialed in with the hand up line should be open uh, not, I think Thomas in New York and then our caller at 9325 Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers, listeners. Um, <clears throat> I'm happy to say that we're at the end of this book. Um, I think that there's a lot to be learned, but it's, you know, it's one of these things that uh, it's like a necessary thing that you really you know, sort of hate doing. Uh, you know, dealing with Tillman <clears throat> every week. But I'd like to start out, you know, discussing some of the uh, people that the author mentioned, the black editors like T. Thomas Fortune, co-founder of the National Afro-American League and later the Afro-American Council, uh, <clears throat> and the brilliant uh, Kelly Miller, who was a mathematician, had a law degree, and was a dean at the College of Arts and Science at Howard. You know, he briefly mentioned these people, and uh, it's good that he mentioned them because, you know, uh, we may have heard of them and we may not have heard of them, and most likely probably haven't heard of them. But they were uh, given a counter, uh, I guess, racism. They were given another view 
they weren't just sitting back taking what Bill Tillman was saying about blacks and the way that the book would switch from colored, black, African-American, <clears throat> and then back to Negro, you know, is uh, pretty amazing, too. I noticed that, but it seems that he's, uh, when they spent a lot of time talking about T. Thomas Fortune, they, he was using Afro-American because I think he was given credit for coining the phrase, uh, first to use it. But uh, he made a statement like, I don't want any more good niggas. I want bad niggas. It's the bad niggas with the Winchesters who can defend his home, his children, and his wife. So he had a militant-type <clears throat> view. It had to be an alternative view to just peacefully existing in uh, atmosphere like that lynching and just uh, murdering. Uh, white people would just decide to riot and just go out and start killing blacks randomly like in the Atlanta riots. And then we had mentioned some more riots early in the reading. <clears throat> Excuse me. But even uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was in agreement with uh, T. Thomas Fortune as far as uh, defending his home, <coughs> using uh, force to defend his home. This guy, uh, during the time these editors and uh, owners of the local newspapers was creating an atmosphere or forming the minds of the masses, so to speak. So you got people like Brandenburg, who, through his racist writing, <clears throat> uh, painted Tillman as some, you know, uh, American hero. And having, yeah, I guess think he started a series called At Home with Big Americans in 1908. But, you know, a bunch of uh, stereotypes of black people and, you know, almost comical stuff. Like when he's <clears throat> talking about uh, uh, Joe, that's Joseph Gibson, who uh, after a lifetime of uh, servitude with Bill Tillman, <clears throat> then the book. You know, wrote something about Bill Tillman uh, shedding a tear for him or something, you know, which was ridiculous because Bill Tillman had killed black people and he haven't even given a thought about any of the people that he had perpetrated terror against. And then they wanted to show that he had some love for an enslaved individual that he owned. And I thought that was, uh, that basically that was offensive, really, because uh, the book was saying that poor man uh, didn't even have a change of clothes. So, uh, 
I'll save some of these comments, but then I like to say that towards the end of his life, you know, he came to show what he really was, you know, stingy and cheap and miserly and all of these other uh, attributes, but he still stuck with that image of black men raping white women and I guess that's the ever-going theme for these white supremacists. Now, you just need an excuse to kill and terrorize black people. And I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. Ashe, appreciate the observations. Uh, I think, Thomas, uh, in New York, uh, you should be with us as well if you had uh, commentary. Good evening. Good evening. Good to hear from Good you. evening, Gus. Good evening, Mr. Demery and all the rest of the callers. Um, I had a few observations. Um, once, first, I'd like to say um, I really like this book. Uh, I'm kind of happy to move on, though. But I learned a lot. Um, but it's quite sad, you know, sad to learn that a huge reason why we are being terrorized today, the way we're being terrorized today is because of this one-eyed murderer and racist. Um, so, you know, Gus, the books you've been picking have been right on point. I think, you know, they've, they've been writing on, um, since, since I've been participating at least in the book study sessions, um, you know, this one came, you know, just, this just little, um, piece that we read this, you read this evening, um, came right on point, um, a hundred year anniversary of, you know, the white man's narrative, or should I say the white man's epic birth of a nation. Um, you know, a large part comes from the ideals and and and, and some of the, the the mindset of this Ben Tillman. Um, you know, and of course, you know, Gus the Renegade Slave. Um, the irony and the synchronicity of it all being two thousand fifteen has just been like, you know, this is just a great book for you to pick because it's like it's right in place, especially with Dylan Roof. A uh, hundred years later, we're reading a book about the actual creator, you know, the the the, the orator, orator of the narrative that we live under today, um, you know, um, it, it, and it's an epic, you know, a long poem. An epic is a long poem, you know, um, it kind of, you know, uh, a nation is built off of an epic story. Each one of them, uh, be it Beowulf for the, for the Anglo-Saxons or you know, the Old Testament for the Jews or the Epic of Gilgamesh or, you know, the Egyptian creation myth, you know, Horus, Heru, and Osiris, you know, Dr. Ben, you know, laid it out better than anyone. And and never the epic for the United States is these niggas is going to rape our women. We got to do everything to keep these niggas down. I mean, it's everything that this man stood for. Um and I agree with um with, with Mr. Demery said, but I, I think of it a little bit, you know, differently as he got older, I think that he um could no longer fill his plantation with slaves and um low wage black workers like he once could. You know, the laws were changing and you come to find out that he didn't know nothing about farming to start with. You know, they did all the work. He reaped the benefits. What he knew was how to keep them in line, keep them in order keep them subservient to him, that's what he knew. And that's what he stood to uphold. Without that, he had nothing. 
And um, I'll be my line for now. Thank you for taking my call. Right on, right on. Uh, for the folks that are listening in, if you have final thoughts as we uh, wrap up, move on from Ben Tillman. Uh, don't wait till the last minute. Uh, we do have second uh, audio segment, so we are not we are not done, uh, but we'll be done uh, at the end today. Uh, before I even get to uh, some of the things that we read, I encourage footnotes. Right, uh, a lot of the books that we uh, read, they are referenced, so you can kind of dig in the back and, and see where they are getting this information from. Uh, the newspaper or source that they got it from, and sometimes they even have additional uh, information uh, about some of the uh, passages in the text. So uh, this is footnote number 89 uh, to chapter 7, which we read today. Uh, And this is where he's talking uh, about Ben Tillman and Thomas Dixon, who's the white uh, race soldier uh, who wrote The Klansman, which is what the film Birth of a Nation is based on. Uh, So footnote number 89 reads, uh, uh, a year after the film was released, Birth of a Nation, Dixon was still complaining of attempts to censor it. In a telegram to Tillman, he claimed to have spent $75,000 fighting censorship and asked for the senator's help in reaffirming the principles of free speech in America. Then footnote number 90, which is the very next one. Uh, One scholar concludes that Birth of a Nation illustrated in graphic fashion Woodrow Wilson's own vision of national reunion. That legacy persisted at least as late as the 1980s. The packaging of video cassettes of The Birth of a Nation included uncritical summaries of Dixon's version of Southern history and the University Press of Kentucky continued to sell a 1970 edition of The Klansman with copy on the back cover describing the Klan as, in quotes now, an organization formed with the intention of restoring the pride and prosperity of the South and praising the novel for offering a greater understanding of the social and political turmoil in the Klan's early years. Hmm. All right, back to the text. I had there's one more footnote that uh, I will share as well and then proceed uh, in terms of things that stood out. Absolutely. Black journalists, this would be another one right on for black journalists uh, and right on for black self-defense. Again, this and that is one thing that I can definitely say. I would have to uh, say that Mr. Kantrowitz, I think he, he did a really good job and it's consistent throughout the book. Just this book alone, uh, you have oodles of examples of black self-respect and black people who are not cowards and scared and afraid who are standing up and saying that we are not going to uh, just casually uh, accept any sort of abuse and torment that white people are doling out. And I mean, this is an era when you got white mobs, they can go out and burn down the whole community and whatever, that even in that environment, you have black people that have black self-respect. Uh, and are even willing to kill white people. That's we've heard repeatedly uh, here where white, uh, black people were organizing, getting firearms, even killing uh, white people. We read earlier in the book where they lynched a white man who went to try to sexually molest a young black girl. So that's, if anything, I would hope uh, with as many illustrations as, we, as we've had uh, throughout this book uh, that you know people will keep that in mind. Uh, when folks say that black people are cowards and we don't fight back and that's the reason that these things uh, keep happening because we just take, you know, whatever 
racists want to dole out that is just patently false and disrespectful um, just the the gravity of what uh, Thomas in New York just said about the, the consistency of, and, and the power of these narratives and stories and tropes uh, for the system of racism, white supremacy in terms of this is the, the 100 year anniversary of uh, Birth of a Nation uh, the Klansmen, uh, they have a film adaptation of it that came out in like the 60s or 70s. Gus T. Renegade plays the star character of, uh, excuse me, O.J. Simpson plays Gus the Renegade in the Klansman version that came out in like the 60s or, or 70s, which is, I don't even know what to say, profound on so many levels. Um, but I mean, just the whole reason that we're reading this is because of the, the massacre at AME, the assassination of uh, state Senator uh, Reverend Clementa Pinckney, um, Dylan Roof, race soldier, he had the same anxieties and fears of Ben Tillman, uh, the Klansman. Uh, there's even, if, if folks see the documentary film uh, Welcome to New Orleans, there's a white man, he's in the French Quarter, and they interview him. This film came out like a year after Hurricane Katrina. And he was upset and, and mad and, and blaming the response to the storm on uh, black people and saying that they, you know, black people are in charge of the city of New Orleans and they did a horrible job running things. And that's why this is all messed up and it's their fault. And, you know, we just we got to have we, we got to give them white women to keep them happy. We just got to keep giving them white women and letting them have their way with white women to keep them. I mean, it's just it is amazing. And, and I would just again. Welsing, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, I think she has done a brilliant job assessing <clears throat> what all of this trepidation and anxiety. Uh, and I think even recently when she's been on the programs, she has been asserting that she thinks the increase where you have all these police shootings and different acts of white. In fact, I saw that I can double down. Give me two of those for Katrina 10. Uh, if you, I think it's the same document. It is this. It's the same documentary. Uh, Welcome to New Orleans, uh, where they are in Algiers Point. We were just talking about that yesterday. They were justifying uh, them going out and having these groups of race soldiers, armed race soldiers, who who were bragging about shooting and killing black people. They said that you cannot run into a white woman's house. We don't tolerate that around here. Maybe you all put up that with somewhere else, but we do not. We don't tolerate that around here. I mean, that is just uh, consistent uh, throughout the system of racism, white supremacy, and it, it is so easy to rally and justify any sort of violence. Even today before this program, one of the last things that I did was I checked to see because they have announced that uh, the FBI is uh, probing the death of Lennon Lacey, uh, and that was widely reported that that might have been related to him having sexual intercourse with this white woman in addition to the uh the rape that was going on him in ending up being uh killed perhaps because of some sort of sexual activity with a white woman just astounding uh and that is something that's been ubiquitous throughout our, our reading of the text uh also i thought it was uh important when he was talking with his daughter about how much money we talked last week he's doing these speaking engagements he's going all over the country uh talking about the the negro problem he said he made uh, about $25,000 between March and October of that year. Uh, I just figured if, if we're throwing in January, February, November, and December, 
at minimum that sounds like he would be at thirty thousand dollars at minimum uh i just did for twenty five thousand i didn't even even round up just if he uh just taken twenty five thousand dollars from nineteen o seven today's money that would be well over a half a million dollars just to give you some perspective on how much money he's getting paid i mean this is like whoa he's blowing timothy wise out of the water i think <laughs> to have well over a half million dollars for his uh speaking engagements to go around and talk about racism white supremacy i would assert again uh for white people racism pays <laughs> mistreating and abusing black people it pays very well um let's see some of the other things that i thought were great uh in this section uh this the bit at the end about uh cold please i thought that was fascinating as well but i have another uh footnote for that as well that i can add in so i guess before before i get to that portion of it did anybody did y'all have any anything else you wanted to tie in i wanted to ask also about his uh son and even even joe i think uh mr demry four uh, had brought, uh, brought up Joe, this uh, victim of racism who's being enslaved. They do have a picture of Joe with the two horses that they mentioned. These are This is all of Ben Tillman's property. Uh, they do have that photograph in the book. Uh, it's on page, I think it's in chapter 7, uh, right at the tail end of chapter 7. But yeah, they, oh, it's on 281, 281, tail end of chapter 7. They do have that, that photograph in as well. I thought that was... Uh, just really disgraceful uh, in terms of the way that black people are abused. And then he gets to kind of get his final insult in and putting his name uh, on this victim of racism's, uh, I guess, the tombstone that they that he paid for or erected or whatever the case may be. Just disgraceful all the way. But if folks had thoughts on uh, the son, uh, the court case, I think, where he tried to uh, deed his child over, if you all had any any thoughts on that uh, or if anything else uh, stood out of significance uh, in the in the chapter that we heard have you heard yes sir yeah um, not only is he um, partly responsible for the system he's partly responsible for the uh, the, the law that says that women can keep their kids you know I mean that's only to be like common sense but you know I guess back then it was different uh, as for the black man, um, uh, what was the name of that racist governor, Wallace? I, I can't remember what it was. That Mississippi or Alabama? Uh, Wallace. I think that's Alabama. George Wallace. That's Alabama. George Wallace. And I remember he had this black guy that worked for him. And I kind of, as you were reading that part, I was like, man, this sounds like, you know, this guy, you know, stayed with him to his dying day and. Um, you know, it's just sad that forever, you know, I'm sure, and I hope that I'm right, this man did not want, you know, he did not really like being, you know, in the position he's in, the way Wallace made it out to be. Uh, but then again, you know, like um, Harriet Tubman said, you know, she would have freed thousands more slaves if they would have known they were in slavery. I mean, he probably, you know, would, would feel like it was the greatest thing ever for this man to put his name on his tombstone. You know, unfortunately, uh, due to the extreme victimization. Um, that's all I had to say. Thank you. Uh, caller at five two three four should be with us as well. If you had commentary or thoughts you wanted to add. Ah uh, yes, can I be heard, Gus? Yes, sir. Oh, all right. Greetings to you and uh, greetings to Thomas from New York. Um, 
and all the other callers as well. Um, I had, I found it interesting because I came in late, but I did hear that his son Br uh, went to Princeton University, and um, I found that pretty uh, fascinating because Princeton's history was one of such where. Uh, Southern planters and Southern farmers who basically owned uh, black slaves would send their children to Princeton to be educated on how to further the system of white supremacy. So Princeton was basically one of the main educational institutions for uh, racist white Southerners where they would basically groom their future generations and posterity to take over where they left off. And it's interesting for me personally because my son ended up going to a school in the same area called the Lawrenceville School. And the Lawrenceville School was basically the, the high school. It was basically the Princeton of high school. Um, where this is uh, kind of tangent because uh, Br went to Clemson, oh. not Princeton. So, oh, I thought he said okay. I thought they said Princeton. I, did he have a plantation in Trenton? Uh, it's Trenton, South Carolina. Oh, okay, I thought it was Trenton, New Jersey. My bad. That's what I mean. I came in late, so I didn't get to hear everything the way I wanted to. So I just oh, okay. I, my bad. I'll meet my line there. But I just thought I thought you would he. Uh, went to Princeton and I thought they had a plantation in Trenton, New Jersey. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'll chime in later since I'm here now. I can pick up on the next segment. Cool. In the gang, no apology necessary. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you. Clemson grad. Yeah, he was talking about his, uh, well, he didn't say his son, but he just said that uh, Clemson uh, agricultural schools can also produce dudes. We, I think we talked about that before about have quote unquote a dude factory where you're not really producing white men who are going out and being constructive, productive, maintaining the empire of white terrorism uh, where they're just getting drunk and B.R. Tillman <laughs> being uh, non-constructive and shiftless, basically. Um, the uh, Mr. Demi if you had any uh, other commentary, feel free. If any of the other listeners, uh, if you have commentary you want to get in as well, feel free before we get to the second audio segment. Okay, yes. I just... Uh, wanted to say that you know one thing we learned from this book is that there's no sense in trying to reason with racist man woman and child we had some instances in the book where the Reverend J.L. Dart you know tried to uh, reason with Tillman and then there were uh, three people I think they judge or Dennis and a minister, you know, tried to uh, get Tillman to not talk about lynching and the other disparate, uh, degrading uh, things that he would say about black people when he came to Chicago. They offered money and everything, and Tillman came and just said what he wanted to say anyway. So we could come to a conclusion that, uh, you know, there's a a like of, you know, being authentic. You know, white people do not take the responsibility for their actions. And then, but as black people, we have to be authentic and real to ourselves about the system of white supremacy. And uh, about that, threat, you know, that Bill Tillman, you know, received, and then he went on anyway, after a white man had been shot in the head, you know, I thought, well, to me, this is one of the first times that I've seen him 
you know, show any guts and go ahead and just stand behind, like Mr. Fuller was saying, stand behind your work. You know, if that's what you believe in, stand behind it, even if it means your own death, you know. Uh, and if you like killing so much, then his own death, you know, should be hilarious to him. Uh, but it seemed as he got closer to the end, uh, you know, he was doing everything to try to stay alive. And you had already mentioned about the 25000 he'd made on speaking engagements, and you don't make that much, you know, during that time if no one wants to hear what you have to say. So there was a large minority or the majority of white people wanted to hear what he had to say. And then that bit on page 281 about Red Summer and uh, talking about Bill Tillman's prophecy came true when the Northerners confronting substantial black population in close quarters would soon resort to murderous violence as white Chicagoans rioted against black neighbors. You know, it's almost like the black people cause it, the way the book is written. But uh, I'll mute my line with that. Thanks, Cliff. That uh, Red Summer is very important. Um, they had the book right in front of me, Cameron McWhorter, Red Summer, where he talks about the uh, white terrorism of 1919 that was national. Uh, it was not restricted to anything down south. Uh, Chicago was a part of that. Arkansas, Washington, D.C. Carter G. Woodson almost died uh, in Carter G. Wood, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. He had to run for his life, uh, literally. Uh, as he saw white people uh, murdering a black person uh, right down the road from him. It was uh, extraordinary. Uh, where you, I mean, literally, at times you had mobs of 10,000 white people uh, out to participate and spectate uh, in the murder and torture of black people. Uh, incredible chunk of time. Uh, one year after the death of Ben Tillman. Ben Tillman died in 1918. Um, with this Belize character at the end, uh, Coley, Coleman Livingston Belize, former governor uh, of South Carolina. Uh, this right here I thought is fascinating because I think Mr. Fuller, he talks frequently about hypocrisy being such an integral aspect of the system of white supremacy where this guy is like a carbon copy of Ben Tillman. Uh, I think Kantrowitz kind of expresses that explicitly in the book that he's doing all the stuff, the insults, the rhetoric, going out and insulting people, uh, real hard racial stance. If you're not, if you don't agree with me, you must be a nigger lover, or you're sleeping with some nigger wench that you're trying to go and and sneak off with after this is done. Uh, it's Ben Tillman. We've heard this before. We've heard this. Uh, they've just recanted how he spent 25 years building up his political career, functioning in the exact same manner. But he doesn't like this. Like, oh, this is this is a travesty. I can't believe that this guy is resulting to this sort of thing. And how dare you you go out in public and accuse someone of having some sort of illicit sexual affair with some nigger wench? And it's like he when he was out on his speaking tour, I think he said when he was in Oregon and some white person uh, opposed what he was saying, didn't necessarily agree with his racial views and he asked him if he had uh any black blood if he had a nigger ancestor or what have you i mean it's 
just incredible. Um, I'm, I'm even having to stop myself because I'm realizing that there is uh, a lot more to come with all, how all of this played out uh, with Mr. Bleeze. We kind of stopped in the middle of middle of the chapter, so uh, I'll have to reserve. My, I had one more footnote. I'll have to reserve until uh, folks get more of that. Uh, I will flip back a tad just to make sure I have not missed out uh, on anything. Um, his poor opinion uh, of the uh, black workers. I, I just was cracking up laughing. I will definitely have to say that this book uh, is pretty funny. Um, on the slide, like I, I would not pick this book up and think that this is going to be a book that will be, uh, be worth some giggles, that you'll get a laugh here or there. But there have been quite a few moments where I was just cracking up laughing. Uh, as I read the book, uh, where you get some of these uh, racist literature, where they have these uh, just ridiculous pathological representations uh, of these happy enslaved black people. And yes, a mass. Oh, yes, this is great. White people love that sort of thing. We've talked about plantation uh, fiction, plantation literature on the program before the help uh, uh, driving Miss Daisy. That's why you have all of these types of films that keep coming out and keep coming out and keep coming out. Uh, and probably they got more of them down the road. I think uh, they're doing an adaptation of Roots uh, that's supposed to be coming out sometime soon uh, down the road. So, I mean, they love this sort of thing. Um, just any sort of depiction, particularly of black people being inferior, being beaten. In my opinion, that's why 12 Years a Slave was uh, such a success. They really, really enjoy and just reminiscing about the good old days. We could just be very explicit in our brutality against black people. Um, power of black journalism can't emphasize that enough I really did not I had not heard uh, of any other than W.E.B. Dubois and Carter G. Woodson but I uh, Booker T. Washington excuse me other than that I, I did not heard of, of T. Thomas Fortune and, and many of the other folks that have been mentioned throughout the book had not heard of them at all but this would just add to the legacy uh, of the significance the importance the power of black journalism and I'd have to emphasize as well uh, for this time period, like these would be contemporaries of like Ida B. Wells Barnett. Uh, she and many other black people had to flee. Uh, literally, they put their life on the line uh, doing this work to try to get information out about racism, white supremacy to report uh, so that people can be informed. Uh, just in my opinion, I mean, just the highest commendations for doing this work. Uh, at this time, uh, because it was so dangerous. I mean, you had people uh, who were being, I mean, still being attacked and bombed and, and everything else. But at this particular period, the early 1900s, uh, the Klan is, is getting Hollywood films made after them. I mean, that is just extraordinary. Uh, and it, it, it has been, uh, that has been something I've really appreciated uh, in reading the book. Um, anything else? Sticking out is important. Hmm. The fake photograph, I thought that was important as well, just more with the uh, the deception, not being honest. Uh, how things, even we give you uh, the false representation of, of Ben Tillman speaking to this crowd of white people where they've cropped it so it makes him look more like he's a, a poor, working class white man who, who has the common man, common white man's uh, interest at heart. Oh, and that's not true at all. This guy's got this guy made a half over over a half million over six hundred thousand dollars just between March and October, according to his report of 1907. He is not 
poor white trash at all was not growing up he was on a huge slave plantation uh, as a child just a total lie which is what the system of white supremacy is built on uh, through and through Uh, I think it's also uh, I mean just for hitting for time all the way through I think this is also the 60 year anniversary of uh, the murder of Emmett Till which also is revolving around the white woman uh, unless folks have uh, other commentary, they want to make sure they get in. We get to the second audio segment. Folks have anything else they want to make sure they get in? Why don't I will assume folks uh, are good. That was in uh, the jungle as well, uptown, uh, uptown Sinclair's the jungle. They had the same mythology of the raping black beast uh, on display there as well Uh, so we will pick up we are on 290 is it 296 oh wait a minute not 296 298 that's where we are 298 top of 298 uh, Tillman admitted that Blees had imitated his practice of reciprocating his enemies attacks rather than turning the other cheek how appropriate that we are on the what is this i think the 52nd anniversary of the march on washington we even have uh, allusion to dr king and the uh tool of nonviolence. uh if you had other commentary that you wanted to share jot it down because uh, we will have time for folks if you have things that you want to make sure you are able to uh voice we'll have time after the second audio segment concludes so just jot it down uh, again concluding thoughts it can be uh if if you have rethought reanalyzed how uh, your perception of the charleston shooting uh, or just racism white supremacy in general major thoughts major themes that you'll take away uh from the text uh we'll have time to go over all of that before we put Ben Tillman and the reconstruction of white supremacy to rest uh, the cows. This is audio segment number two. Again, we're picking up on page 298. Tillman admitted that Blees had imitated his practice of reciprocating his enemies' attacks rather than turning the other cheek. As a result, he claimed he would be surprised, very agreeably so. If some men are not killed before the end of the Jones Blees campaign. But Tillman denied that Blees was his political heir and declared that Tillmanism and Bleesism were no more alike than day and night. If there were a connection, he thought it was with Tillman's estranged nephew Jim, not with the senator himself. Tillman believed that he had truly stood for the people against the oligarchs and corporations. But although those battles had been fought with intense bitterness, they had never caused him to make indecent charges against opponents or to be accused of corruption. Although he found Jones unappealing, Tillman ultimately decided that he would rather lose his own race than see Blees reelected. In early August 1912, he made public his negative assessment of the governor, leading to a permanent rift between the two men. Both men won renomination later that month, but Tillman was not satisfied with the stand he had taken. In an open letter to Blees, Tillman sought to define the differences between them even more explicitly. Tillmanism, he explained, meant genuine democracy 
the rule of the people, of all the white people, rich and poor alike. Bleasman, by contrast, meant personal ambition and greed for office, or Blease and his friends. It was selfish, low, dirty, and revengeful. Tillman noted that both men as governors had earned the enmity of conservatives, but whereas Tillman had gradually begun to earn their support, Blease deserved the hate and distrust they evinced. Rejecting Blease, Tillman denied and disavowed the inflammatory political style he had once championed, including the accusations of dishonesty, fraud, and corruption he had leveled against his white Democratic opponents during the 1880s and 1890s. He found Blease's attacks discreditable to the state, especially in the eyes of the national audience with which Tillman had become so concerned. There was a quality of pleading to Tillman's repeated claim that his own bitter contests and his enemies bore no relation to Blease's low tactics. Even more striking, in letters to fellow Southern Democrats, Tillman relied on the moral and historical authority of Northern Republican heroes. Southern Democrats could not afford the division of Blease's dirty electoral fights, he warned, for a house divided against itself cannot stand. Let us have peace, he concluded, or at least decency. In keeping with his quotation of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, Tillman sought to revise the democratic political demonology he had once written in stone. Many Haskellites, Tillman said, had voted for him in 1912. Therefore, Haskellite ought not to be an epithet of an opprobrium in South Carolina any longer. Astonishingly, he even praised Alexander Haskell himself. Blease, on the other hand, lacked grace or honor and would probably be known as the very worst native South Carolinian who was ever governor. Reconstruction Republican Franklin. Moses not accepted. Tillman's attacks on Blease caused many longtime Tillmanites to feel that their leader had deserted them and joined their oppressors. Blease himself never forgave Tillman, denouncing him for sending critical letters throughout the state in 1912 after having promised to keep out of the contest. But the greater challenge for Tillman was not Blease's hostility, but that of Blease's voters. In a letter to his children, Tillman confessed that he was unable to understand why so many of these old Tillmanites should have been misled by a man of the type of Cole L. Blease. Many of my old supporters are angry and may scratch me off the Democratic ticket in the primary election. But he felt that by coming out against Blease, he had regained his self-respect. Sick and weak physically, I still have had nerve and brains enough to do a grand thing for the state under very trying conditions. His confusion and ambivalence told the tale of a man increasingly uncomfortable with his emerging legacy. The election of Woodrow Wilson to the presidency in 1912, the first Democrat since Grover Cleveland and the first Southerner since Andrew Jackson, came late in Tillman's life, but it allowed him to take a few final swings at the legacies of Reconstruction. One among many Republican crimes against white supremacist order, he believed, was the appointment of black men and women to federal offices, and Tillman worked to cleanse the federal government 
of this legacy of Reconstruction. For years, Tillman filibustered and protested against President Theodore Roosevelt's nomination of William D. Croom, a black man, as collector of the Port of Charleston, a fight that even fostered amicable relations between the senator and Charleston News and Courier editor J.C. Hempfill. After the Democrats took over the Senate in 1913, Tillman gained new powers and became more ambitious. He pursued several strategies intended to reduce the number of black federal employees, strip them of authority over whites, and segregate those who remained. As Wilson's cabinet officers pursued this project, Tillman also worked to remove blacks from postmasterships and other appointed positions in the South. This campaign offered a chance to settle old scores once and for all, and Tillman successfully sought to have his longtime nemesis, Robert Smalls, replaced as the federal collector of customs at Beaufort. Although President William Howard Taft had abolished the office and Smalls was going to retain the position for only another few months, Tillman wrote to a Senate colleague who sat on the appropriate committee, Mississippi's white chief, James Vardaman, to ask that Smalls be replaced by a white collector. My reasons are largely sentimental, wrote one white supremacist to another. Smalls's ambition is to be the last collector of the port of Beaufort. I want a white man to supplant him. Vardaman was happy to oblige. Croom and Smalls made irresistible targets for Tillman's symbolic crusade against black power, but his concerns about the nation's racial destiny made him willing to tolerate exceptions. He thought it appropriate for the United States to appoint black men as ministers to Haiti and Liberia, and he agreed to forward a list of candidates suggested by Reverend Richard Carroll. He saw no reason why some South Carolina Negro should not have one of these places. Tillman also apparently endorsed Carroll as an orator in the Democrats' Midwestern campaign in the 1912 presidential race. Blees, though, seemed blind to the importance of such symbolism. When Blees attacked Wilson for allowing any blacks at all to hold federal positions, Tillman wrote angrily to a South Carolina friend, President Wilson cannot do more than he is now doing to get rid of the Negro. Otherwise, he will arouse all the old abolition sentiment throughout the North and all to no purpose. The Ambivalent Jeffersonian Tillman's disenchantment with former allies reflected a deeper anxiety about the fate of the nation and even democracy itself. The reconstruction of white supremacy, he realized, might never be completed. Tillman not only had idealized the world of his childhood, but also had positioned its institutions, anxieties, and imperatives as essential human truths. He had spent most of his adult life seeking to shore up political, economic, and legal foundations that had been catastrophically undermined during his teens and twenties. His successes were obvious. Anti-monopolism remained a popular political credo. Southern Democrats sat in the White House and at the heads of powerful congressional committees, and racial hierarchy and discrimination were becoming legal and cultural norms of national life. But 
in important respects, the 20th century world seemed to offer only pallid and half-hearted versions of the proud white agricultural patriarchy he had envisioned. Tillman had built his career on the argument that the solidarity of white male producers as soldiers and citizens was the only proper basis for Southern or American government. His white man's democracy, he thought, reflected the best of what Thomas Jefferson had offered the world. He happily cited Jefferson's example as evidence that democracy did not necessarily require black citizenship, but by the last decade of his life, Tillman was no longer sure that even Jefferson's racialized agrarian democracy could work, and he remained ambivalent about most white men's fitness for self-government. Throughout his career, he claimed that the overthrow of South Carolina's antebellum oligarchy was one of his proudest achievements. But as he saw what his white men did with the democracy he had restored to them, he became less and less confident that he had been on the right side of the fight. I have come to doubt that the masses of the people have sense enough to govern themselves, he wrote to a colleague in 1916. And lest there be any doubt which masses he was referring to, he made his fears explicit. It was South Carolina's white Democratic primary that worried him. Votes for the demagogue, please, haven't strengthened my belief in democracy. Jeffersonian, as you call it. When the people got the mad dog feeling, as they did during Blease's campaigns, democracy gave way to demagoguery. So almost with one breath, he could quote Jefferson on trusting the people, but also declare that a benevolent despotism is the very best form of government. This ambivalence led him to criticize a primary system that allowed nearly all white men to participate. In the wake of the 1895 Constitution, the Democratic primary was the last redoubt of white men's democracy. The Blease-Jones fight in 1912 had drawn nearly 30% more voters to the polls than the 1910 primary, but this market upturn was subject to multiple readings. Rather than interpreting this as evidence of a still healthy democracy, many Jones supporters believed and meant that Blease had stolen the nomination. Since Jones was backed by longtime conservatives, there was nothing surprising in such suspicion of increased popular participation. But they were seconded in their skepticism by the one-time champion of the farmers who joined the chorus of those seeking to purify the Democratic primary. Tillman was deeply troubled by the disparity between the large number of primary voters and the small number eligible to vote in the general election whereas the combined 1912 primary vote for Blease and his opponents had exceeded 130,000, the vote in the November election, which included a presidential contest, barely reached 50,000. This reflected the state of general elections in the post-populist, post-disfranchisement South. Between 1904 and 1948, scarcely a third of the much smaller pool of eligible voters made it to the polls for federal elections, although the explicit intent of his constitutional reforms had been to restrict political power to white men, 
Tillman now feared that Democratic nominees were being chosen by men who were ineligible to vote in the general election, men who could not help safeguard the state against Republicans and other enemies of white supremacy. He wrote of the need to cleanse the primary of men who helped choose a nominee they could not help elect. At first, he spoke only of the need to save the primary, but over the next year, it became clear that this would involve an entirely new Democratic registration and the party's disfranchisement of those ineligible to vote in the general election. Tillman's younger allies, sensing grave political danger, tried to persuade him to retreat from this position. John G. Richards, who had gubernatorial aspirations of his own, reminded his mentor that he had given the state its first primary to take such a cruel step as to deprive white Democrats of their votes would only return the state to the conservatives. He argued Tillman retreated, but his disappointment with the fruits of his constitutional labors did not abate. He spoke disdainfully of those white men who would not take the trouble to register. He was, he said, mortified and disappointed that the primary system had not made white men better citizens. The wiles and tricks of demagogues had taken the place of substantive debate, a method of campaigning for which he refused to accept responsibility. Although he still claimed to believe in popular government, his deep misgivings were plain. Tillman continued to yearn for a white South Carolina in which landowners did not have to rely on free black laborers. He saw a growing labor problem in the South. The difficulty of getting servants in the houses and efficient labor in the fields grows day by day, he declared in 1908, even at their best under the direct and absolute control of white overseers black farm laborers performed inadequately, but the white folk Tillman had claimed to champion seemed scarcely better. The fact that a neighbor's good new tenant house had glass windows and other appliances still indicated to Tillman that it is for some white man, but Tillman found the white families he employed barely preferable to black workers. Writing to B.R. in 1916, he described the Barry, Pitts, and McCarty families as practically worthless. His harsh evaluation of these white households rang with the same grievances he and other planners had long voiced about black laborers. They shirked honest labor, required close supervision, and grew too much cotton and not enough food. The only difference between white and black laborers, Tillman believed, was that white workers did not steal. Considering the virtues that Tillman's Anglo-Saxons possessed in the abstract, this was a miserably small concession. He continued to seek ways to improve them regardless of their individual wishes. In 1914, in what turned out to be a premature farewell to public life, Tillman even pondered the possibilities of a truly compulsory public school system, one that would force white children into school and at the same time give the blacks only the kind of training, manual and industrial, which they can assimilate. In correspondence with his nephew, John Swearingen, state superintendent of education, however, he indicated 
that he understood that no coercive system would meet with the approval of the state's suspicious voters. Perhaps the solution lay in white immigration. Tillman believed that immigrants from favored portions of Europe, Holland, Belgium, Scotland, and Germany would reclaim lands and establish independent households and that their efforts would more than double the value of every acre of land in the state. If the state's 800,000 blacks could somehow be exchanged overnight for 800,000 of his chosen Europeans, Tillman imagined property values would quadruple. Despite this fantasy of wholesale racial translation, Tillman recognized that the mass departure of black South Carolinians would create dangers as well as opportunities. Planter wealth continued to rely primarily on arduous, low-wage labor that was hardly likely to attract Tillman's idealized white Europeans. Indeed, during the Constitutional Convention, Robert Smalls had understood this dependence so well that he had reminded his white colleagues of it. The Negro is needed in the cotton fields and in the low country rice fields, and if you impose two hard conditions upon the Negro in this state, there will be nothing else for him to do but to leave. I do not believe you want to get rid of the Negro, else why did you impose a high tax on immigration agents who might come here to get him to leave? Although Tillman imagined millions of thrifty, energetic white home seekers tilling the soil with new vigor and industry, he acknowledged that the conditions awaiting new entrants to the state's labor market who would earn six, eight, and ten dollars per month and live in a hut would not suffice. As Tillman's vision of racial purity collided with the realities of agricultural economics, he was forced to consider alternatives. The light-skinned Western Europeans he preferred, our kith and kin, were greatly outnumbered by the masses of Southern and Eastern European immigrants of the early 20th century. Like many white Americans in every region, he worried that mixing so much ignorance and filth with our American strain of manhood would undermine American institutions. He believed that Italian immigrants, for example, lowered the standard of our citizenship. Tillman wondered if the country was becoming a heterogeneous mass of different nationalities with diverse aims and ideals. These men and women swarming across the Atlantic were not our kind of people, he explained, except that they are white. But that might be enough. Treated kindly and intelligently, among the good company of the state's best white people, these unpromising new arrivals might be made industrious tenants and good citizens. Just as even the most capable African Americans were doomed by their blackness, these least promising Europeans might be redeemed by their essential whiteness. It would be a limited victory at best, and it represented an aging Ben Tillman's increasingly pessimistic view of the future of white supremacy. Whiteness might have lost some of its luster for Tillman, but blackness remained at least as dangerous as it had ever been. Despite Tillman's bold description of the South as 
an imperium in imperio, the region sometimes seemed to teeter on the edge of his much-feared race war. During the winter of 1906 through 1907, whites in Beaufort convinced themselves that the black majority intended to rise up against them. In a preemptive strike, a white paramilitary group seized a U.S. military Gatling gun. But the uprising never occurred, and the theft only came to light because the gun was destroyed in a fire. In 1911, a McClellanville man wrote to Tillman to report a series of alleged waylayings and shootings of whites by blacks that he attributes to whites not being sufficiently armed. Asking Tillman to have the sheriff's weapons released into private hands, he described the situation as trouble with the white man's burden. The specters of race war and the black beast led Tillman to the painful conclusion that his family would be safer far from South Carolina's black majority. I never will cease to bless my stars that I have at least two daughters away from the blight of their presence, he wrote to his beloved daughter Sophie in 1916. Sophie, who lived in Oregon with her husband and daughters, had briefly considered returning to South Carolina, but Tillman told her that this would be a mistake. I cannot get it out of my head that in the future, the race problem will cut a great figure in South Carolina, he warned. And you are away from all this and your little girls are beyond any possibility of danger on account of it. His defiant bluster about white men ruling South Carolina, no matter what occurs, made good newspaper copy, but his own family required a greater security than the 20th century white men could provide. Familiarity with federal power and the naval affairs had weakened Tillman's opposition to overseas intervention, and he became as militant and defiant a war hawk as he had been an anti-imperialist. When William Jennings Bryan, as Wilson's Secretary of State, engaged in a policy of international treaty-making and conciliation, Tillman turned skeptical and finally disdainful, deriding Bryan as the evangel of peace at any price. In 1917, he strongly supported Wilson's decision to enter the European war. As head of the Senate Naval Affairs Committee and the representative of a state containing naval facilities, he took a strong interest in naval preparedness. He also saw the fight as a just war, one in which democratic nations fought Germans who had been educated into fatalism, who had become slaves and not free men at all. The war in Europe became the basis for his 1918 campaign for an unprecedented fifth Senate term. It would be foolish, he told his constituents, to deny the president such a powerful ally in the Senate. He was also determined to prevent Blease from gaining the seat, perhaps agreeing with John Gary Evans' suggestion that this much you owe to the movement. The campaign for a fifth term was underway when Ben Tillman died on the 3rd of July, 1918, struck down by a cerebral hemorrhage a month short of his 71st birthday. Letters of condolence poured into Trenton, where a distraught Sally Tillman mourned her beloved husband. The Senate for its part, produced a volume of memorial addresses that included platitudinous tributes from such unlikely figures as Republican Henry Cabot Lodge, 
a bitter, cold breeze, fuming that that son of a bitch Tillman had received such testimonials, could only swear that the old man had not been what he seemed. Don't believe me, he scrawled on a copy of the Senate's memorial volume, but look up his life and see. Epilogue the reconstruction of American democracy. The ensuing decades bore witness to Tillman's reconstruction of white supremacy. South Carolina remained so solidly under white democratic control that Cole Blease declared himself astonished in 1924 to discover that just over a thousand votes had been recorded in the state for Republican Calvin Coolidge, but the victory was broader still. Federal policy and legislation continued to defer to the strictures of Tillman's white supremacy until the upheavals of the Second World War altered the regional, national, and international balance of power. Regulatory and interventionist federal policies did not simply add white supremacist codicils to otherwise race-neutral reforms. Rather, federal programs and policies had to be redrafted through the southern wing of the Democratic Party. During the red summer of 1919, as white men across the nation lynched scores of black Americans, including veterans of the European War, Tillman's one-time protege, James F. Burns, rose in Congress to repeat the threat that Tillman had made throughout his life. White men would never accept black men as political or social equals, and any resort to violence must inevitably bring to the Negro the greatest suffering. This is a white man's country and will always remain a white man's country, he declared, repeating as dogma the slogan that Tillman had had to back up with force, fraud, and fear. Despite the countless acts of vigilante terror still faced by black Southerners, Burns and his colleagues blocked federal anti-lynching legislation. When some New Deal policymakers sought to bring a measure of justice to Southern agricultural life, they were beaten back by the still powerful representatives of the Southern planter class who profited from the policies of the Agricultural Adjustment Administration and insisted that agricultural and domestic employees, the great majority of black Southern workers, be omitted from the wage and social security protections enjoyed by other classes of workers. It was in the context of these crippling limitations that Burns unveiling a statue of Ben Tillman on the grounds of the South Carolina State House in 1940 described the planter's son as the state's first new dealer. The state's inscription would have pleased Tillman even more for it described him as the friend and leader of the common people who had taught them their political power. Subsequent commentators agreed with this assessment. In 1944, Edgefield native Francis Butler Simpkins published a scholarly biography of his former neighbor, concluding that Pitchfork Ben had accomplished both good, limited democratization for white men, the establishment of Winthrop and Clemson, and the dispensary system, and evil, especially by encouraging what Simpkins, no liberal, saw as increased racial antagonism. Simpkins had spent more than 20 years studying Tillman, and he understood the distance between his reputation as a radical and reformer and the reality of his career. But even this acute observer could not help being drawn in. 
In closing, musing over the statue of Tillman, Simpkins found determination in the expressive face and the rugged strength of a leader of the common people in the liniments. The same interpretive trap awaits us today. It is tempting to conclude, remembering the founding of Winthrop or surveying Clemson's Tillman Hall, that Tillman's legacy remains divided, tragically but typically by race. Perhaps the murderous white supremacist was, just the same, the friend of the white plain folk, and perhaps our assessment of Tillman's legacy must try to balance one against the other. Such thoughts would have pleased Ben Tillman, confirming that 80 years after his death, his legacy had the potential to set the descendants of yeomen and slaves, or Yankees and Confederates, against one another. But people struggling to make a new world from the ashes of Confederate defeat needed a better friend than Ben Tillman. His love for his common people was mixed with disdain and always limited by his fear of offering black Americans the opportunity to pursue their own visions. If he was able to pose as white men's great protector and ally, it was in large measure because he had so skillfully and insistently made war on the competition. Even the tangible contributions he made to white South Carolinians' welfare, especially Clemson and Winthrop, must be reconsidered in this light. Ben Tillman's legacy cannot include the Clemson that now exists, an integrated and co-educational institution, for through the doors of Tillman Hall now pass men and women whose paths stretch back to many continents, men and women who understand the right to wage political struggles without fear of violent retaliation as a basic element of citizenship. In this, Clemson repudiates rather than represents Tillman's legacy. He would have torn down his beloved Farmer's College brick by brick before he would have allowed it to foster a world where neither sex nor race defined the limits of a person's attainments. Moreover, the image of the white savage that Tillman promoted did a graver injury to his people than any blow struck by their foes. Since the antebellum era, northern travelers have frequently perceived the white south as a society composed of two classes, aristocrats and poor white trash. The red shirts' rhetorical tactics had reinforced this notion, holding degraded white men responsible for the worst acts of violence while alternately suggesting that elite whites could control them but would not do so unless their demands were met. Tillman and his ilk did not so much use poor white men to achieve their ends as they used the image of the poor white man, the white savage, lurking just beneath respectable restraint. The consequences for the nation have been profound and tragic. A national discourse of white southern degradation and poverty continues to persuade many non-southerners that the white south is America's evil twin. Throughout our popular culture and even in high-budget dramatic works purporting to tell the truth about southern history, lower-class white southern men of staggering ignorance and almost primal viciousness are the real south. Of course, the discourse is not wholly fabricated and there is no point in evading the many brutalities perpetrated by real white Southerners in the name of white supremacy. But Tillman's most insidious success is the pervasiveness of this image, 
a negative reference so potent that it still clouds our vision. It allows white non-Southerners against all evidence to blame someone else for the country's continuing struggle over the meaning of race. Worse still, it encourages the belief that the defeat of Birmingham's Bull Connor represented victory over white supremacy itself. At the very least, Tillman's story should remind us that the most earnest advocates of violent white supremacy were actually among the wealthiest white Southerners and that it took all of their historically accumulated skill and dexterity to beat back the challenges that never stopped bubbling up from below. Some of our forebears' dreams remain nightmares from which we are trying to awake. These include the ruthless greed of Yankee slave traders, the often genocidal expansionism of Manifest Destiny, and the vision of violent white manhood that animated Ben Tillman's 70 years. Tillman's true legacy lives on whenever Americans continue to shore up the battered foundations of white supremacy. It lives on wherever dissent is met with violence, wherever white men are the only first-class citizens, wherever populism is reduced to what one contemporary called Tillman's gospel of discontent. To undo Tillman's reconstruction of white supremacy requires us not only to challenge the consequences of his actions, but also to understand the words and ideas that he used and the sources of their power. Only that understanding can provide the basis for a real reconstruction of American democracy. And that will do it. New book next week, uh, Gary Rivlin, Katrina, After the Flood. Back-to-back books written by white men. I was trying to find a book written by a black person. I failed, or actually I didn't fail. I just couldn't find what I was looking for written by a black person. Maybe it's out there and I just failed. But that is our next book. Very excited. He was actually a guest on uh, Democracy Now! today. Uh, Gary Rivlin uh, talking about the anniversary and all that stuff. And uh, the entire time he was there, he was talking about racism, white supremacy. But that'll be next week. We will finish up on this one today. If you have comments you would like to share, the new number to chime in, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Feel free to chime in. Last study section. If folks have comments on uh, what they heard from the second audio segment and or uh, if you want to kind of put things together uh, from beginning to end. Uh, again, major thoughts, major themes that you will take away if this changed uh, the way that you view what happened in South Carolina with the shooting at AME, Emmanuel AME. Uh, and or any other uh, thoughts that you uh, will take away from the book, feel free. Uh, Mr. Demery Ford should be with us, uh, as well as our caller at 5234. Yes, can I hear it? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, 
you know, what I was thinking about earlier is the word reconstruction. And if the author had, you know, come on the program, I would have asked, you know, why did he write the book? And then secondly, why did he use the word reconstruction of white supremacy when white supremacy probably existed, you know, before Reconstruction and before Bill Tillman and uh, even after that. But um, I didn't really have much to say about the uh, second segment except that they, the media, the authors, uh, his friends, people assisted him in creating an image that was not authentic. It was uh, a lie. He, until the end, proposed to be for the poor white man or the poor man, which he couldn't have been further from the truth on that. And they said he came from humble beginnings, and that wasn't true. And... um, it seemed as though the central theme was to keep the black man down. So that's the major theme of white supremacy because it's not as soon as black people get ahead or start to form some type of economic power or some political base, they are... Uh, holding us down constantly. Even if you're in a stabilized accommodation where you think things are peaceful and that you're coexisting, they're coming up with ways to come in, rough you up, hold you down, make it even worse for you. So that's the way that I sum up the book is that 24-7, all of this evolving, has evolved into the prison industrial system, a political system that's corrupt, and a police state where uh, black men are still terrorized on a constant basis, and some some of the same atrocities are happening today as happened 150 years ago. I'll mute my line. All right, all right. Uh, let's see. Thomas in New York and caller at 5234. Both of y'all should be with us as well. Um, good evening again. Thomas Smith in New York. Man, I agree with Mr. Demery. Um, I think what he meant by the reconstruction, and, and when the guy comes on the show, I hope he does, uh, that would be a great question. I think what he meant was, um, you know, slavery is over. You know, these niggas are free. And uh, how can we get them right back into the, like you said, the prison industrial system, put them right back in slavery? And I think that's what um, ultimately the reconstruction of white supremacy, you know, was. And I thank you for the show because, I mean, if it wasn't for your your um, compensatory calling about, you know, Tillman Hall and things, I never even would have known this guy existed. He's like the 
one of the pinnacle characters in the system that we live in. You know, um, he prided himself as a, a democ um, as a champion of democracy. He wanted to restore democracy to South Carolinians, and you now I always have a problem with democracy. I think that democracy is going to be the demise of our people one day because it's essentially a mob rule. And if there was a vote today that said all black people back to Africa, let's just say, and every citizen in America over the age of 18 had to vote black, white, et cetera, you know, we might as well start packing our bags today, you know. I mean, that's essentially what, you know, democracy means to me. Um, and I, I just don't. I just see it being a bad thing for us. You want to send all the black people to Liberia? <laughs> you know, I mean, once they were not able to be his slaves and, you know, they started not working for him for low wages, they left to go to places like Chicago and, and Cleveland and other places, New York, you know, et cetera. You know, now let's get rid of these niggas. <laughs> we don't have no more use for them. Um, you know, and, and what stood out to me was, he realized that there was no difference between white workers and black workers, but black workers still, you know, I think that's an ongoing thing to this day. And I've had a lot of jobs, man. No one steals more than whites. Whites steal time. Whites steal toilet paper. Like whites go in. And, you know, because they're white, no one looks at them as being a thief. And um, even when I worked in retail stores, I mean, whites would steal. It would be like, wow, look at that. I mean, my first time, I was like, wow, that lady had those socks, you know. And then I realized, man, they steal more than black people do. It's just that, you know, we we just don't see it. And um, we refuse to see it, maybe. Um, great book. Uh, I don't have any more uh, observations as of right now. Um, thank you for taking my call. For sure, for sure. Uh, any other uh, comments, folks listening in? Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. Um, I had an observation. I just found it interesting that he titled the epilogue The Reconstruction of um, American Democracy. And the very end, at the very end on page 309, yeah, 309, where he says uh, to undo Tillman's reconstruction of white supremacy requires us to not only challenge the consequences of his actions, but also to understand the words and ideas that he used and the sources of their power. Only that understanding can provide the basis for a real construction of American de democracy. I find that to be a double entendre because we're living American democracy right now. And the era of Ben Tillman per this book was the origin of the version of American democracy we're living right now. So to me, it's almost like a way of saying we need to study what Ben Tillman did so we can basically reconstruct another variation of white supremacy that will be called American democracy. Um, that's the way it reads to me. And then I found something else he wrote interesting on page 308, uh, where he says, Tillman and his ilk uh, did not so much use poor white men to achieve their ends as they used the image of the poor white man, the savage, lurking just beneath the respectable restraint. To me, that is the essence of this book. That is the essence of white supremacy. It is uh, this idea that 
you know, well, not even this idea, the reality is that just beneath the surface of what we think is a so-called civilized society, that anything can happen and anything goes. And I think Katrina was a great example of that as far as the Danzinger Bridge and all the other places that these white people came from all over the place with their guns to kill, you know, innocent black men, women, and children. Um, and to me, that kind of uh, is the, the essence and the crux of white supremacy. You know, things seem to be civil, but at the drop of a dime, they can come out of their skin and go do and roof on you in a heartbeat. And um, I agree fully with, with uh, Thomas from New York and with uh, Demery Ford on, in their assessment of this book. And I think it was a great read. And thanks again, Gus. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking my call. For sure, for sure. Uh, for other folks uh, listening in, have commentary. Hey, Gus, real quick. Um, synchronicity again. Um, he just went up the, the bridge. And, uh, you know, we're going into the Katrina book. And I'm starting maybe to think that Chris Cow wasn't lying, man. He might have been up there shooting some people from the group of the Superdome, the way it sounded, man. I'm, I'm not too sure if he was lying. They send the best out there to do it. You know, hey, man, you're the best shooter in the world. Go up there and kill some niggas for us. I could see that happening. Oh, I, I totally, uh, I, I think uh, white people killed, armed white goons killed a lot of black people. I just, I don't think he was one of the armed white goons killing people because nobody can place him there. There's nothing to substantiate him being uh, present at the time or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's no evidence that, that he was there doing such a thing. Not that I don't think folks like him, maybe his kith and kin uh, were out there doing uh, large amounts of that uh, over that stretch of time, but that's uh, something for folks to consider. Um, I reckon some of the... the oh, I might have my footnote and then a few of the, the observations I had before we end. The uh, footnote that I had about uh, former Governor uh, Blease, so I had said some of my commentary before the second audio uh, segment played uh, about the hypocrisy that this guy's like a carbon copy. He's doing a lot of the same things that we, you know, heard from Ben Tillman over the course of this book. And, you know, he said, Oh, this, this guy, this is not a representation of, of Tillmanism. You just going out here and making these accusations and what have you, and not being about quote unquote democracy. Uh, so after, uh, Mr. Uh, Blease loses, uh, his bid for, uh, reelection, Apparently, uh, Tillmanism sends a telegraph. Make sure I get the correct one here. Uh, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, when Blease was defeated in his bid for a Senate seat in 1914, Tillman gloated. In a short, scathing telegram, he offered his defeated former protege a biblical quotation the heathen are still raging but the people rejoice see Deuteronomy 32 15 goodbye <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I just, that is hilarious I mean that is, this is the guy who has a statue at the state capitol in South Carolina <laughs> it's not just it's not just the barbarism and the racism like this guy is just total all the way around everything that I read. That's why I keep saying over and over again, why is this someone that you would want to recognize? What is it about this guy? that's like, yeah, I want to be like Ben Tillman. Like this is, this is somebody that we need 
all of the children in the state of South Carolina. You should know, Ben Tillman. You should you should look up to this guy who gloats over people when they lose and sends them nasty telegrams. Quoting the Bible, it's just amazing. Given everything that we've heard, I just keep. I think my refrain for this book has been, "What has he done?" If it's not about glorifying his dedication to the gospel of white supremacy if it's not about that i have no idea what all of this is for why is tillman hall at clemson why is tillman hall at winthrop why is his statue on the state grounds i just am not seeing anything uh even even his contemporaries are having a tough time figuring out exactly what have you done to reform things exactly what have you done to help poor white people like exactly what have you done that is so magnificent that everybody needs to know your name and remember you you know a hundred years after you have died we still need to remember and talk about you and you know admire you and respect your legacy if it's not racism white supremacy i'm totally confused and i have just missed uh misread uh the text here um let's see the uh, i i did not think that should be glossed over uh, this segment where you had these white people who, for whatever reason, thought that the black people were going to uh, have some sort of upright. That's Katrina right there. They're looting. They're coming to get us. They're going to take over. Uh, and so they went out and got a Gatling gun. <laughs> and all, I mean, that's another thing that's been recurrent throughout this book. Uh, white people and the threat of Negro domination at the drop of a dime. They are ready to go out and kill every black person on site. No questions asked. And that that to me is another. One. That's why I said that quote about the savage, the white savage, that if you cut him deep enough, he is ready to run wild. And I think that is one of the most important concepts that I will take uh, from this book. Uh, I think folks should keep that in mind uh, when we see white people. Again, Dr. Uh, Khalif Muhammad, a.k.a. Sin Q, he was on the program, I think it was like two years ago, and he was saying, I think it's in Mr. Fuller's code book, where he was basically saying that white racists, they have the ability to be nice. They can be nice to a black person. Yes, give nigger Joe some extra sweet potatoes. Let him have all he wants. Fine, we'll give him a you know little shack in the yard. The rest of you niggers can sleep in the ditch for all I care. They can be they can be very nice. It can be Brad Pitt coming in. Let me, you know, build, you know, 50 or 150 new houses for everyone who drowned in New Orleans. They can do that. It's many, many white people. George, but I saw him. He was down uh, in New Orleans in the ninth ward, no less, hanging out with all little black children, taking selfies and thought, fine, no problem. We can do that. But at the drop of a dime, it can turn er, Let's kill every nigger on site. No questions asked. If it's 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, whatever. And we'll make up whatever justification we need to. Uh, that is hugely important. That's one of the major ones that I'll take away uh, from the text. Um, in the epilogue, when they're talking about how this statue that has become a, uh, well, I won't say a big source of controversy, but people have been talking about it over the past since uh, Dylan Roof got down uh, his murderous act in June on 308 uh, where they're talking about uh, this is one of I guess Ben Tillman's uh, protégés um, oh this is wrong so I'm sitting here looking like what is why is this not like here we go sorry it's 3 306 306 uh, James F. Burns uh, congressman uh, when he I guess is a part of, of the effort and the unveiling and everything 
uh, for the statue, and he gives context. Uh, this is 1940 when uh, Ben Tillman gets his statue on the state grounds in South Carolina. The context of this is him working to block black people from getting social security. Um, people want to talk about welfare and entitlements. I mean, that is massive. And I mean, that's generational uh, where you have black people who are working, toiling, slaving for 50 years, 60 years, and then they don't get anything uh, when they're older uh, and they can't work. And to have that go on for generations, uh, it's just it's economic terrorism on so many levels. But to have that as the the background that this is one of the white people who work to keep probably some of the folks that are listening right now, great grandparents and great, great grandparents uh, or grandparents to keep them uh, from having income and to having a bit more security. Uh, that's, I mean, that is continuing the legacy of Ben Tillman, do everything we can to keep and stomp on black people. Uh, and we're going to make sure we get, uh, get his statue uh, erected as well. Uh, the epilogue, I mean, even, the, the the point in terms of Ben Tillman not doing anything, I think I've said that. The point of him being kind of this fraud, uh, poor white trash uh, guy who, you know, fought and mustered and all that being a fraud. I think we talked about that. Mr. Demi for great job. But uh, kind of the same thing that you all are saying. It, it just Dr. Welsing was echoing my head. We're not in a system of democracy. And I think when white people like our author and many others, when they... Uh, attempt to say that we are uh, trying to reform or even reconstruct American democracy. We have only had a system of white supremacy. I don't think you're going to be a point to be able to point to a time in the last 500 years in this area of the world where you had justice, where you had something other than the system of white supremacy. That's what I mean about just being accurate about terms when you're not doing that that's when i think a lot of the uh confusion uh comes in when people are trying to to grasp and be honest about what it is that we're talking about um and and i also think just not being honest that white people the reason that tillman hall is still there at clemson and winthrop and his statue uh at the state grounds and still not coming down even after everything from this summer is that there is no reconstructing of this. There is just eternal commitment to white supremacy. That's what it is. That's the whole reason that Ben Tillman is important to white people. White people are not going out of the business uh, of practicing racism. Uh, just the epilogue. Uh, I mean, that's typical white person. That that would be another one. I'd say that right there in terms of people keeping in mind that a white person wrote this book. Uh, I also, I thought it was uh, extremely important. I'll pause after this one, see if other folks have commentary they want to get in. But I thought it was very important kind of as he's getting close to dying and, you know, kind of looking back and, oh, man, this is not cool. I need to tell, recommend that my uh, children uh, move to, you know, Washington State. Like, this is not going to be safe. We got all these niggas here and lazy, shiftless white people that like my son are not doing what they're supposed to uh, to maintain white supremacy. They're not even qualified to function and govern themselves. Like, man, this is this is not looking good at all. That seems to be pretty typical uh, of white people. It seems like you have a lot of the same white people. Uh, Donald Trump has been mentioned many times uh, throughout this program, but I just I think there are many many white people. Pat Mu uh, Pat Buchanan, uh, David Duke, particularly I would say like older white people, the white people that are uh, with the birther. Uh, movement and uh, the white people who are saying feeling like they are losing their country and this is no longer their way of life that seems to be a 
uh, common cry from white people, and not just in this area of the world. I've heard that from white. That even sounds very similar to uh, Anders Breivik, uh, the race soldier who killed all those people uh, out in Norway uh, back in the summer of uh, 2011. Uh, that you know we got too many non-white people here. We're not we're not being serious uh, about the gospel of white supremacy. You know we're letting all these not like people come into the country and change things that seems to be pretty consistent i don't know if that uh just is is the nature of people uh where they lament and feel like things are just slipping at the end or if that's something peculiar uh, about the system of racism white supremacy this this notion that many white people have particularly i would say older white people when they kind of get to the end of their time of uh, terrorizing black people on the planet when they get to the close to the end of their existence feeling as though uh, the system is in peril, the system is in jeopardy and this might not be in place in the future. It seems like I've heard a, a lot of laments like that uh, from older white people. Uh, I'll pause there. Uh, if folks have any other comments they want to get in, close of the book, uh, feel free to chime in. Any of the other folks uh, on the line or folks that are listening, you should get your hand up now. Don't wait till the end if you know you have comments that you want to get in. Uh, anybody else have comments they want to share? Right on. Folks might have got everything they wanted to get. Uh, out of the book I hope it has been uh, a constructive investment of time I know for me like I said there are certainly uh, some concepts and lines that I will be using moving forward uh, referencing this book and just this this concept of the savage white person the savage white woman savage white man and savage white child that is ready to one wild abusing black people that's definitely something I'll be using uh, in the future um, that footnote, as I was saying about the, uh, well, I guess when these white people in South Carolina, they thought it was going to be a riot. Uh, one more footnote I will get in. Uh, he writes, uh, this is footnote 37 for chapter 8. Uh, he says, it is worth <clears throat> it is worth considering whether the fire that destroyed the gun might have been set intentionally by black activists determined to prevent fearful whites from taking their preemptive actions a bloody step farther against a black majority as they had less than a decade before in Wilmington, North Carolina. Hmm. Interesting. I will stop there and make sure I'm not missing anything else good before we uh, push forward. Let's see here. Oh, wow. B.R. wrote a biography about his dad. Incomplete, apparently. Shiftless B.R. Tillman. Um, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we're good on the footnotes. Uh, again, uh, if folks have anything else, if you have about another five minutes, if you have anything... You can feel free to get that in the next uh, couple minutes. If not, we will consider this one uh, all wrapped up. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if this impacted the way uh, people think uh, about the uh, Charleston shooting. If nothing else, I would hope <clears throat> when people get carried away and talking about the Confederate flag, I, I definitely hope that most of the people who listen uh, to the cows were not on that to begin with. 
one of the points that I maintained all along, there are so many symbols of racism, white supremacy. Literally, you have to walk past Ben Tillman's statue to get to where the Confederate flag was hanging in South Carolina. The monuments are ubiquitous to white terrorism and the abuse of black people. I just I find it <clears throat> laughable to the highest degree that white people can go and act like this represents progress, quote unquote, that this represents a step towards democracy and justice uh, when you've got Ben Tillman hanging out with all of his shrines and they've been very clear I think someone was asking that at the beginning like because we were closer to when everything started in South Carolina and they said you know do you think they're going to rename some of these buildings or take down some of these statues I will timestamp there was uh, uh, another one of his statues was vandalized uh, this week I think they said that uh, the vandals had done about $15,000 worth of damage uh, but the statues uh, are not coming down Tillman Halls both of them they're not being renamed and they cannot be uh, it require I think I'd said this before it would require uh, a two-thirds vote in the South Carolina Congress and Senate and then it would have to be signed off on by the South Carolina governor uh, for any of that to be changed uh, removed they already said this and many white people already stepped forward and said they had no intention uh, of letting go any of their Ben, Till ben Tillman uh, paraphernalia or any other uh, monuments to dead white folks uh, in South Carolina so I just think that's uh, significant to think about again white people are not going out of the business of racism white supremacy I think uh, Mr. Tillman is a great illustration of that and uh, I think uh, the book even though I do have my uh, my criticisms of certain points I think it does have some constructive info I hope folks have benefited uh, I'm going to contact uh, Mr. Kantrowitz I'd said before uh, he knows that we have been uh, studying his book reading the book he sent me one of the more recent articles that he wrote and uh, he had said all along he was agreeable to coming on the program it's just he's been out of the country uh, but he said once he, he gets back in the states he'd be down to talk to us so We'll see if we can make that happen uh, for September. Folks who've been following along should be extra prepped <laughs> to ask some great questions and even pull a quote or two from the text if they are so inclined. Uh, with that, uh, I suspect we are all good. Anybody make sure didn't miss anybody have anything they need to get in? I wanted to say one last thing. It seemed to be a central theme of the black man and the fear of white women being raped and so that seemed to be a code you know that these racists was using as an excuse to uh, lynch and murder black people and that's where I leave myself absolutely Absolutely. Time on its 60th anniversary of Emmett Till being murdered. Um, I will uh, also make sure uh get in before we uh, wrap things up. I think uh, Clemson, uh, they are going to have a pretty big spotlight uh, this coming year. Their football team, I think, is ranked number one uh, in the preseason polls. And I think they did well last year. They're expected to do really well. Uh, this year, if that happens, uh, if I was a black person in that area, 
that might be something to consider because uh, I'm sure that they will have a lot of national attention. Uh, if you have some attention and, and say, hey, we want to try and do something <clears throat> to bring attention to this, that, you know, they've still got uh, this guy has still got all these shrines uh, on our campus. Uh, and we want to bring attention to the problem of racism, white supremacy, and we're not going to let this issue go. And every time all these camera and press that you come here for your bowl game, that we're going to refocus on what we think the top priority is. I would definitely uh, consider taking advantage of that in the most uh, constructive way possible. And maybe that's something folks can be on the lookout for. Uh, this year. Not saying you got to watch the game, but just if there are any protests uh, or any uh, programs that are attempting to be clear uh, about the war that is being waged against black people. Uh, definitely something to keep an eye out for uh, this coming autumn. Uh, with that, we are all done uh, next week. Again, the new book, Gary Rivlin, Katrina after the flood. I'm very much looking for, I have not read it. Uh, that's two books in a row that I have not read. I hadn't read this before either. Uh, I just came out. I think this will be, uh, one of the, <clears throat> I think this will be one of the few times where we're reading uh, a very new book. Um, I can't even off top. I can't even think of a time where we've read a book that was literally hot off the press. This just came out, I think a week or two ago. Um, and, you know, for the anniversary and everything, uh, I was, I really didn't want to do another white author, but, uh, I had certain parameters. I, if uh, we were going to do a book on Katrina, um, I wanted to definitely be front and center talking about the racism and not just the immediacy of the storm, but everything that's transpired in the decade afterwards. I wanted something that had that perspective because there were many, many books published within the first year or three uh, about what happened. Uh, and many of them focused on racism, the media coverage, etc. Um, it's been 10 years. I wanted something that was more recent that had, uh, more updates, more information, the displacement, all of that, all of the information that I wanted, I think is in this book, just based on the reviews that I've read. Uh, I've read some of the different articles that he wrote, even, uh, unbeknownst to me, I mentioned, uh, his book yesterday. Uh, people were posting <clears throat> some of the articles that were talking about how white people in Mississippi, came out with guns to block black people from entering their town. Same thing. Ben Tillman, always the threat of Negro domination. Um, I didn't even know that this happened in Mississippi as well. I knew about, you know, the various incidents that happened in Louisiana, but this happened in Mississippi as well. I didn't even know that that came from Gary Rivlin's book. Uh, they've had a lot of different articles that he has written and or other people have written that are based on or adapted from his book, Katrina after the flood, which we will be starting next week. <clears throat> I'm very excited. Uh, I do not encourage folks to purchase the book. Uh, you can get it. You should be able to get it from your library. The only problem is it, I suspect it could be in high demand because it just came out and it's a top seller, but um, it should be at libraries, public libraries and what have you do not encourage folks to white people made a lot of money off of thousands, of black people dying, drowning being banished from new orleans they certainly do not need to make any more of our nickels uh writing about how we were abused and terrorized and killed uh down in new orleans so with that uh we will be back tomorrow for the compensatory call-in uh and we'll be back uh, next friday uh beginning gary rivlin's book katrina after the flood uh, if you have any <clears throat> commentary suggestions problems gripes uh crazy commentary feel free Drop an email until 
justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com thanks for all the folks uh, who participated listened in I uh, hope it was constructive for the people who hung in listened to the whole thing hope it was constructive I hope you learned something we definitely don't want people wasting time if you're listening in if you're not getting constructive information that you can use going to help you solve problems and get a better understanding of what racism white supremacy is how it works find something better to do with your time and energy uh, that said buckle up that's one of the easy things we can do to work against racism we want to do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers just buckle your seatbelt. that check one thing off the list that can perhaps keep them from abusing and harming your family you anybody else in the vehicle uh, also sobriety would be best under conditions of war uh, definitely don't want to be under the influence behind the wheel. I would even say if you're going to be a passenger, uh, there should be some hesitation around that. Even if you're going to be a pedestrian, uh, it's just too many illustrations where uh, white people, enforcement officials, uh, it will be any sort of justification uh, to come and do their what they call stop uh, and fondle and molest and question and just try to do everything you can to minimize having to experience any of that and sobriety I think can at least cut down on some of that uh, if we're sober we're lucid we can make the best possible decisions to protect and cherish our black lives and, and any other folks who have children or other folks that you care about be sober that way you can look out for them make the best choice to uh, make sure that they're safe as safe as possible under conditions of white terrorism that being said creator we ask that you help us remain patient under conditions of white terrorism not patient we ask that you help us constructively and honestly confront the system of racism white supremacy help us to not be in denial about the abuse that black people face every day strengthen our will and dedication to solving this problem and working constructively with other black people to do so help us be patient with other black people help us be patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all areas of people activity each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>